Hello, folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Stephen Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visit blog and author of A Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visupview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, dot blogspot, B-L-O-G-S-P-O-T, all one word, dot com. And procure a copy of that book and my other works at the Farm's official store, which is at eFarmPodcast. That is the farm podcast, all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the farm's Patreon. You get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content. Okay, joining us today is another repeater. He is the founder of the Coalition Against Voter Disenfranchisement and Election Fraud. He is also the curator of its excellent website, cavdev.org, and is presently investigating the mysteries surrounding Ted Bundy, Waco, and the death of John Benet Ramsey. He is George of Cavdev. George, thank you so much for dropping by again tonight, sir. Thanks for having me, Stephen. It's always a pleasure. Indeed it is. All right, guys, today's show is going to be epic. This is the fifth installment in our ongoing series chronicling the development of international fascism. Today, George and I are going to explore one of the most neglected victims of this rise, Africa, and specifically Southern Africa. During the final stages of the Cold War, Southern Africa was transformed into a laboratory by the various powers to test new forms of counterinsurgency, super soldiers, and above all things, chemical and biological weapons of war. The conflict in Afghanistan and the various dirty wars that raged in Latin America during the 1980s have justly been denounced for their brutality. But in many ways, what unfolded in Southern Africa during that same era was even worse than the developments in those other parts of the world. Thousands, if not tens of thousands of people were murdered by CBWs alone. And that may be a conservative estimate. By the way, you'll be hearing the phrase CBW what that stands for chemical and biological warfare and chemical and biological weapons as well. Regardless, Southern Africa was the first modern was the first place where modern CBWs appear to have been used against the populations in mass, which is even more relevant now given the current situation in Ukraine. And that's only scratching the surface. In 2004, a remake of Manchurian Candidate was released. It's taken me years to fully appreciate the scope of what was revealed in that film. On the one hand, it raised the specter of the deep private via the Manchurian Corporation just as people were first becoming aware of such developments. The deep private is another subject we shall discuss here. But even more relevant for today's top talk were the scientists tasked with overseeing Manchuria's brainwashing operations. They were South Africans. And this will have some staggering implications as we advance through this installment. I assure everyone listening to this, that film will chill you to the bone after this installment, if it hasn't already. 
And on that note, let us get going, kids. Now, as I said at the onset, the Cold War in Southern Africa is little addressed and for a variety of reasons, but principally it was both one of the most brutal and influential counterinsurgency operations in contemporary history. If you guys to fully grok this, I need to lay a little bit of backdrop. So first off, the political situation in Southern Africa by the 1970s. Nowadays, there are about 13 independent nations in the region, including Zambia, Zimbabwe, Nambia, Angola, Botswana, Mozambique, and of course, South Africa. But circa 1960, much of the region was controlled by three powers, the UK, the remnants of the Portuguese empire, and South Africa. And beginning in the middle of that decade, the UK began granting independence to many of its African protector rights, especially in that particular region. By decades in, this had led to a relatively peaceful transition of power in newly independent nations such as Botswana, Zambia, Nawawa, and Estwana, I think. It was in Zimbabwe, then Rhodesia, that significant pushback by the white minority began. Ian Smith's government declared independence from the UK in 1965, technically putting the government, uh, that would be the Rhodesius government, in a state of rebellion against the motherland. The UK maintained an ambiguous relationship with Smith's government until its collapse in 1980. The 15-year period in between witnessed a brutal civil war waged by Smith's white minority against indigenous forces. Uh, we'll have much more to say about that civil war in just a little bit. It's very significant, to put it mildly. Elsewhere, the Portuguese Empire took a very different approach. At the time, what remained of it was run by the fascist state of dictator Antonio Salazar. Along with Franco Spain, Portugal were the principal Western European hubs of unreconstructed fascists during the mid-1970s, when both regime, until the mid-1970s, when both regimes were finally toppled. A big part of the Portuguese fascist state collapse was its taxing colonial wars in Africa. Beginning in 1961, conflict broke out in Angola and the Western African nation of Guinea and then spread to Mozambique in 1964. This is not, this is not to the posterity of the Portuguese colonial war, and it lasted until 1974. While Portugal had technically achieved military victories in Angola and Mozambique, the country had been uh, bled dry economically, leading to the collapse of the Salazar regime. Now, up until the middle of the decade, South Africa had remained largely unscathed by these conflicts. But with the collapse of the Portuguese empire, the worsening position of the Rhodesian regime and the beginning of the insurgency in Nambia, then under South African control as Southwest Africa, things began to change dramatically. South Africa intervened across the region, increasing its support for Ian Smith's government, outright deploying troops in Angola and Southwest Africa, while also supporting the insurgency against Mozambique's Moscow-aligned regime. What it amounted to was that by the end of the decade, virtually the whole of Southern Africa was in some state of conflict, and much of it was being driven by apartheid South Africa. 
The degree of chaos and instability the white minority government in South Africa was able to create in that region of the world for nearly 15 years was remarkable in many ways. While South Africa had and still has to this day the largest population of whites in Africa, they've never constituted more than about 15% of the population in modern times. Thus, the white population of South Africa was significantly outnumbered. And as the years wore on, it was increasingly isolated in the international community. As colonialism ended and newly independent nations took up their place in the UN, especially African nations, increased pressure was put on the West to end apartheid in South Africa. While elements within the US, UK, and France, as well as quote unquote rogue regimes such as Israel and Taiwan, would continue to support apartheid South Africa to the bitter end, the regime was increasingly seen as expendable in the West by 1980. South African elites were painfully aware of this state of affairs by the end of the 1970s, which created a siege-like mentality across the political class. Needless to say, these circumstances led to some rather novel approaches to South Africa's various counterinsurgency operations, which encompassed nearly a quarter of Africa at one point. But before getting to that, a word must be said about the ruling class in South Africa. Since 1948, when South Africa officially broke away from the British Empire, and until the democratic elections were held in 1984, the country was dominated by the National Party, which ran the country as essentially a one-party state. And the National Party in turn was dominated by a secret society known as the Afrikaner Broderbond. The Broderbond or Brotherhood was an all-white patriarchal organization established in 1918 to aid South African Afrikaners. Now the Afrikaners were largely descendant of German, German and Dutch immigrants who had been a part of the Dutch East India Company and had long vied for control of South Africa with the British, the other major white population in South Africa. <clears throat> now, during the early 20th century, the British launched the genocidal Boer War against the Afrikaners. This featured the first mass use of concentration camps in the 20th century. Predictably, the experience of the Boer War permanently scarred the Afrikaner community and led to a fanatical obsession with regaining control of the country. Once they achieved this in 1948, the goal became maintaining control at all costs. At the center of these efforts was the Broderbond. It started as more of a mutual aid society for Afrikaners committed to their political, economic, and social uplifting after the Boer War. But from the beginning, it was committed to extreme secrecy. In time, it grew to over 12,000 handpicked members organized into some 800 cells across the country. Every national party prime minister and president was a member. And so too were most cabinet ministers, senior military officers, titans of industry, heads of the universities, and the South African Broadcast Corporation, or SABC. As such, its control of the South African state was all but absolute, while also enjoying great inroads in the broader economy. When South Africa's massive counterinsurgency efforts commenced in the mid-1970s, the prime minister was B.J. Forster. 
The security situation already appeared grim by the late 1960s and to deal with it forced or strengthened the role of police and in intelligence operations. He also established the Bureau of State Security, or BOSS, to serve as the regime's principal intelligence gathering outfit. Effectively, BOSS was South Africa's answer to the CIA. But from practically the very beginning, there was an intense rivalry between BOSS and the South African Defense Force, or SADF, especially military intelligence. Things came to a head in the mid-1970s. The SADF's disastrous early showing in Angola was widely blamed on BOSS, which was viewed as a glorified police force directed directing major military operations. Then, in 1978, Moldergate, or the information scandal as it is sometimes known, broke. This involved corruption within BOSS and other elements of the civilian security apparatus. The end result was the resignation of Forster and the rise of Defense Minister P.W. Botha as Prime Minister and later President. Further, there is compelling evidence that the SADF were behind the leaks that brought Botha to power. From the point onward, South Africa was practically a military dictatorship. Botha consolidated political power in the hands of the State Security Council, which oversaw the SADF and the South African Police, or SAP, or SAP. The chain of command ran from ex-Defense Minister Botha to his successor as the head of the South African Department of Defense, General Magnus Milan. Throughout Botha's administration, the Minister of Defense was by far the most powerful post in the cabinet, making Milan Botha's right hand. During both his tenures, several crucial bodies were created to manage the regime's counterinsurgency efforts. Many would have wide-ranging implications. So we'll start off with the Armament, Procure, Armament and Procurement Agency, more commonly known as ArmScore. ArmScore was a state-owned arms company closely connected to the Broderbond. It was established in 1968 with the vigorous support of then Defense Minister Botha. In 1978, after Botha became Prime Minister and later President, all of the state's production and procurement capabilities were legally centralized under ArmScore. To fulfill this task in the face of potentially crippling sanctions, it established a vast international network to procure weapons and technology. These things uh, were then reproduced domestically, battle-tested in countries such as Angola, and subsequently marketed overseas to foreign clients as a source of revenue. ArmScore was at the black heart of South Africa's military-industrial complex, the lifeblood of the state by the 1980s. It's estimated that by 1988 alone, 28% of South Africa's state expenditures were going towards defense. A good chunk of this funding was hidden via the Special Defense Account, a slush fund established in 1974 to enable the military to covertly procure weapons through ArmScore. At its height, ArmScore was one of the 20 largest companies in South Africa, employing some 20,000 people directly and another 100,000 via subcontractors. It's likely that the total size of the company was even greater and obscured by its Byzantine network of fund companies. Overseas, its most important node was the Paris office, the Technical Council. 
This was Arms Corps' largest office outside of South Africa. Another important node was located in Tel Aviv, surprise, surprise, which worked closely with project officers and small offices across the globe. In the case of the Technical Council, it was operated directly out of South Africa's embassy in France, which were acknowledged of the French government. Effectively, the Technical Council managed Arms Corps' international business. The TC also worked directly with SADF's notorious Civil Cooperation Bureau, or CCB, if quote-unquote problems arose. Much more will be said of the CCB, so do keep that body in mind. The state of affairs uh, was driven by the mounting sanctions the apartheid regime faced from the international community. This became a matter of national survival when attempts were made to cut off South Africa's access to military supplies. Up until the 1970s, the regime was almost wholly dependent on foreign arms to equip its military forces with. It was during 1977 that international arms sanctions against South Africa began to set in with force. By decades in, the apartheid regime had accepted that this would be the new reality. In order to continue arming up the regime via arms corps, an elaborate international network would be needed to procure the weapons and technology, but also to launder the funds. South Africa had plenty of backers in the Western security and arms sectors to manage the former, but only a major financial institution would be capable of laundering the staggering amounts of money needed to facilitate this network. Fortunately, South Africa already had one in mind. It's now known as the KBC Bank, but back then it was the Credit Bank. In its current incarnation, it is the 15th largest bank in Europe with a major presence in, the, in Central and Eastern regions. The KBC is based out of Belgium, but with a twist. Rather than catering to the Francophile business class that has long dominated the country, KBC has always been geared towards the Flemish bloc in the north of the country. As such, more than a few of its directors have been of the Flemish nationalist persuasion. And, you know, again, we don't really have time to get into this, but there's, uh, yeah, there's a strong Flemish independence uh, movement in uh, Belgium. You know, so it's a big thing there, Flanders and all that stuff. Anyway. <clears throat> KBC became a major player in international finance in 1949 with the establishment of the Credit Bank uh, Luxembourg or KBL Luxembourg. As I'm sure many of you are aware, Luxembourg is a major money laundering center. While this was also KBL's purpose, from the beginning it appears to have high and have had high placed backing. It played an important role in dispersing funds from the Marshall Plan while also establishing close links with U.S. multinationals like Goodyear and Monsanto. There's a strong possibility KBL was also used by the U.S. intelligence community to launder clandestine funding to center-right Christian democratic parties that it favored in Western Europe throughout the Cold War. Further, U.S. and U.K. intelligence would have found it invaluable in collecting intelligence on international monetary flows. The bank's financial interest in South Africa dates back to at least 1960. KBC would invest substantially, substantially in South Africa over the next three decades. 
but it was KBC's most prestigious subsidiary that enabled one of the most striking black networks the world has ever known to function. KBL, that is the Crudit Bank Luxembourg, was the principal bank that established Armscore's elaborate money laundering system. Over the span of two decades, the network KBL set up laundered billions of dollars through some 850 bank accounts. Dozens of different fund companies held these accounts. While funds were set up all over the world, the bulk were housed in Liberia and Panama. By the late 1980s, it was so complex, it required an entire computer system to keep track of all the transactions that Arnoscore was involved in through this network. All right, so much for Armscore, or at least for now. The second thing Botha did that I wanted to focus on was establish some of the deadliest special operations forces in military history. This is especially striking given that South Africa had little special operations capabilities prior to the 1970s. But before getting into the South African experience, a bit needs to be said about the rise of modern special operations forces. So special operations forces became major components of Western militaries during the Cold War, but for very different reasons in the US and Western Europe. As for these United States, the military had no interest in special operations forces at the onset of the Cold War. On the one hand, they were principally opposed to covert operations uh, which the Pentagon was reluctant to you know, get involved with, or excuse me, on the one hand, special operations forces were, pretense, were principally for covert operations, but the Pentagon had little stomach for. And in terms of raising guerrilla forces to attack behind enemy lines, it was felt that this could be easily done after a conflict begun with you know, assets that you already had in the field. Basically, the DOD saw war with the Soviets as inevitable during the 1950s and early 1960s. As such, why waste valuable resources that could be put towards nukes, planes, tanks, and so forth? At the time, the Pentagon was totally dominated by military men from conventional forces, so this line of thinking is not surprising. Thus, it was left to the CIA to fill the void. They created their own paramilitary forces to roll back uh, uh, the communists in Eastern Europe and later to support U.S. military efforts in Korea. Basically, this was an unmitigated disaster. The Eastern European forces were totally compromised by the Soviets from the very beginning and easily rolled up. And the Chinese forces used in Korea were much more keen on trafficking heroin than launching attacks within communist China. The military was utterly disgusted and tentatively signed off on the creation of America's first modern special operations forces. That would be the story Green Berets, who were launched just as Korea was winding down in 1952. However, virtually nothing was done with them until the end of the decade. And it was only really when Kennedy took office that the national security state briefly took these forces seriously for the first time. So JFK had a bold vision for special operations forces, spearheading a worldwide counterinsurgency effort to contain the advances of Moscow. This would plunge the Soviets into a series of unsustainable guerrilla wars while keeping the U.S. out of conventional military war with the Eastern Bloc, thus avoiding the threat of nukes. 
it would prove to be a remarkably foresighted vision. And JFK personally tapped General Edward Lansdale to start setting up special operations forces across the entire military and establish a precursor to the modern-day Special Operations Command, or SOCOM. Needless to say, no one within the national security state wanted this. The military, still chomping at the bit for a real war with the Soviets, i.e. a conventional one, had no desire to become involved in a series of guerrilla wars across the globe. And while the CIA was all about this type of thing, They increasingly felt that Lansdale and elements in the Pentagon were trying to usurp their control over covert operations. It didn't help that the first large-scale deployment of the Green Berets in Southeast Asia, i.e. Laos, Thailand, and Vietnam during the early 1960s, was unable to hold communist advances there. This led to the deployment of conventional U.S. forces in 1965 in Vietnam, giving the Pentagon the illusion of a, see, I told you so, moment. Conventional historians hold that special operations forces and counterinsurgency were in decline in the U.S. by the late 1960s and were not really revived until the Reagan era. But this is not entirely true. What essentially happened is that the Green Belays were withdrawn from Vietnam by 1968 and that their work in the rest of Southeast Asia did wind down. Further, the levels of Green Berets and other special operators were cut by the end of that decade, and they did not start to recover until the 1980s. But that's not the whole story. U.S. Special Operations Forces were quietly deployed throughout Latin America during the 1960s and 1970s, where they refined counterinsurgency doctrine that was first used in Southeast Asia. Latin America became a significant laboratory for this kind of work during that period, but not to the extent of Southern Africa later. Funny enough, a fair amount of U.S. military veterans, most notably Green Berets, found their way into the ranks of Rhodesian and South African Special Operations Forces. We'll talk about one in particular in a moment. So by the 1980s, the value of Special Operations Forces as a stabilizing agent against the Soviet Union was being exploited by the Reagan administration, but not nearly to the extent some would have liked. It really wasn't until the Bush two years that U.S. Special Operations Forces emerged as the spear point of U.S. defense strategy. This is especially true in Cold War Mach 2, where U.S. Special Operations Forces had been squaring off against their Russian counterparts for a few years in Syria prior to the escalation that came with the Ukraine. This represents a dramatic reversal from the initial perception of these forces by military planners during the onset of the first Cold War. In a lot of ways, the performance of South African Special Operations Forces, first for the apartheid regime during the 1980s and later as private contractors during the 1990s, played a dramatic role in reconceptualizing these forces. They also established the viability of using special operations forces as training grounds for POCs that could then operate in the developing world like modern day East India companies. More will be said on that in a moment as well. For now, I wanted to briefly touch upon the Western European and specifically the British and French experiences with special operations forces. So from the beginning of the Cold War, the Brents and the Froggies were far more dependent upon these forces. The British had really pioneered the use of modern special operations forces during the Second World War. 
In the aftermath, with the empire crumbling independent upon American funding, they proved to be the most cost-effective way for the Brits to maintain an international presence. This was especially true after Suez. From there on, the Special Air Services, or SAS, was largely at the forefront of British military policy. France went all in with their special operations forces even before the British. They attempted to wage much of the latter stages of the French Indochina War and pretty much the entire Algerian War with their elite paratroopers and similar forces in the French Foreign Legion. These forces were unable to turn the tide in Southeast Asia while their use in Algeria proved to be a disaster for the French government. Militarily, French special operations forces made a much better showing in Algeria but their methods were so brutal that they lost the support of the French public. Worse, once the decision to withdraw from Algeria and grant its independence was made by the French government, a military coup was attempted. And the bulk of the forces behind the coup were special operators. And many would continue to wage a terror campaign against the French government as the secret army organization throughout the 1960s or OAS. So, during the 1970s, the UK's government was on the brink at a few points of a coup as well, most notably during the middle of that decade. There were rumblings of a military coup, and once again, people closely related to the Special Operations Forces, especially the SAS, were implicated. So, yeah, it's uh, pretty serious with a lot of this stuff. What I want you guys to take away from this is the following. By the mid-1970s, the track record of special operations forces in the field was mixed at best. Further, they were already deeply implicated in regime change in major Western nations by the early 1970s and may have been gearing up for similar actions in the UK had Thatcher not prevailed. Among other things, special operations forces are given extensive training on how to destabilize nations. And using those skills in their homelands has often proven to be irresistible to both the operators themselves and their backers. Something to keep in mind as we explore the last decade of apartheid. On that note, let's get to the Special Operations Forces of Southern Africa. The trailblazer behind these forces was unquestionably Rhodesia. The earliest modern Special Operations Forces in Southern Africa all came from this nation. The first Rhodesian Special Operations Forces grew directly out of the famed SAS. First major deployment of the SAS in the post-war years occurred during the early 1950s in the midst of the Malayan emergency. The World War II era SAS had been disbanded in 1945 and only reactivated in 1947. It consisted of two squadrons in 1950, however. The third, Sea Squadron, was raised in that same year, and it came solely from Rhodesia. In 1953, Sea Squadron returned from Malaya and was disbanded, and it was then reactivated in 1959 with veterans of the original unit. British officers assisted the Rhodesian counterparts in setting up the new unit. The task was completed by 1961. The Rhodesian SAS was later decimated after the 1965 Declaration of Independence with many of the officers defecting. It took time to rebuild the unit, but it remained elite. By the late 1970s, early South African Special Forces were directly working with the Rhodesian SAS under the designation D Squadron. 
collaboration was far closer between the SADF, that's the South Africa Defense Force again, guys, and the infamous Salusis Scouts. The South African police funded the scouts while the SADF personnel served directly in and alongside the unit in various fronts throughout the 1970s. Now, later, after the government even Smiths fell in Rhodesia, many of the scouts transferred to the SADF. In many ways, the scouts were laboratory for the SADF to develop what became its own special operations forces. Now, one of the most interesting aspects of the scouts which was later carried out, carried over into many of the elite South African special forces, was the extensive use of Black Africans among the rank and file. What's more, many of them were former guerrillas. This was achieved by a process known as turning. The British had developed this method, but the special operations forces in Southern Africa took it to the next level. Upon capture, pressure was put on guerrilla fighters to join one of the elite units of the Rhodesian and later South African forces. Frequently, this was supposedly achieved by having a turned guerrilla fighter have a heart-to-heart with another one while they were in prison and also offer a significant cash payment to the prisoner's family. Bribery, in other words. Now... The U.S. has, of course, repeatedly tried this method for its own proxy forces the world over. What's more, we have substantially more financial resources than South Africa and certain Rhodesia ever had. And yet, these two nations could raise special operations forces largely composed of turned guerrillas that remained dedicated to the regimes centered on white rule. It must be emphasized that these soldiers were the core of these forces that propped up minority rule in both of these nations for decades. Was money alone what drove many of these former guerrilla fighters these actions? This is a question we're going to return to in a moment here. So the modern South African special forces were formally established in 1974. The first commander was General Fritz Lutz who spent ample time in Rhodesia with the scouts during the 1960s, or 1970s, rather. After Botha became the president in 1978, controlled the nation by the SADF and the South African police, was consolidated through a shadow cabinet known as the State Security Council. With Botha as as its head, Defense Minister Magnus Ballon effectively became the second most powerful figure in the country. Bloem was a collection of generals and chiefs of the SAP or South African police. And at the forefront of this was, of these uh, individuals was General Andreas Liebenberg who directed South African special forces and military intelligence through much of the 1980s. In other words, this gave South African special operations forces unparalleled power during the final years of the apartheid regime. Due to the efforts of Botha and Magnus, the special forces came to dominate the military during this era. And that brings us to our next subject. So Rhodesian special operations forces also enjoyed considerable influence within that nation. As the security situation worsened throughout the 1970s, desperation set in. Special branch of the Rhodesian National Police and the Salosa Scouts began to develop 
CBW capabilities, that's chemical and biological warfare capabilities, folks, and deployed them during the middle of the 1970s. The results remain shrouded in the cover-up to this day. On the one hand, poisonous chemicals were applied to clothing as well as canned goods and then passed on to insurgents. These substances were tested on POWs initially and then later used to kill at least 800 people. The program was later shut down after it was learned that some of those poison of these poisoned items were passed on to innocent royal villagers. Even more shocking was the use of biological weapons, most notably chlora and anthrax. Several attempts were made to poison water supplies near rebel camps in neighboring Mozambique using chlora by Rhodesian forces. And then there was the anthrax. Both special branch and the scouts deliberately poisoned cattle in the same country with it. But even more incredible are the allegations that the Rhodesian SAS were used to unleash anthrax spores from an airplane near Plumtree at the border of Botswana, the largest anthrax epidemic in the last 200 years broke out in Rhodesia between 1978 and 1984. To this day, anthrax is only endemic to Matabeland, where Plumtree is located. It will surely never be acknowledged if these two events are related, for doing so would reveal the largest deliberate attack using anthrax of the Cold War also a deliberate act of genocide, I might add. As was previously noted, many personnel from the Rhodesian Special Operations Forces ended up in their South African counterparts units after Ian Smith's government fell. It should come as a little surprise that not long after, South Africa began vigorously developing offensive CBW capabilities. The rationale given for this venture was the Cuban presence in neighboring Angola. During the late 1970s, Castro dispatched troops there to support the MLPA, the opposition to the South Africa-sponsored UNITA or UNUNTA. At the time, the Soviet Union allegedly had the most advanced CBW program in the world, theoretically giving the Cubans access to top-shelf weapons of this nature. Further captured Soviet-made vehicles used by Cuban forces there were outlined with air filters, CBW antidotes, and gas masks. But all these things were standard issue equipment. No solid evidence has ever emerged of CBW use by the Cuban or MPLA forces. Further, the alleged defensive nature of the South African program is undermined by the fact that little effort was made to manufacture protective clothing for the troops and the like. In fact, regular SADF units weren't even issued such things until 1988. Now, I need to step back for a moment and put this into some historical context. During the early 1970s, under Richard Nixon, the U.S. theoretically abandoned offensive CBW research, and much of it in general. But around 1976, if not sooner, 
Rhodesia embarked upon a ruthless CBW program and one that made little effort to hide its offensive nature. After the collapse of that regime, many of the figures behind it were transferred to South Africa and continued to work their magic there. But in South Africa, it was a little more subtle and established a reoccurring pattern that continues to this day. The threat of the Soviet and later Russian CBW program was used as a justification to embark upon what was theoretically a defensive CBW program. But it was actually dual purpose, i.e. the research could easily be used to develop offensive capabilities. This was also true of the space program, for instance, that South Africa launched during this era. It was surely a cover to develop their own intercontinental ballistic missiles or ICBMs. In fact, this is the actual purpose of virtually all space programs. Whenever a country talks about, or I should also emphasize, a private company talks about a space program, it's a code word for space-based weapons, folks. Okay, dual purpose. Keep that in mind when you hear a lot of this research. Same thing with nuclear. We're developing nuclear capabilities for peaceful purposes. It's usually also dual purpose that can easily be turned into offensive purposes very quickly. And this is even more true of CBW programs. So, yeah, it's nonsense when you hear about this stuff for humanitarian purposes, guys. It really is. Anyway, another issue with the South African facilities that were set up that would turn up in numerous other such programs the world over in the intervening years are the safety procedures. South Africa, the main lab had a safety rating of three. This type of research was never done in Western or even Soviet facilities with standards below four. In the case of South Africa, so led to a staggering amount of proliferation from the CBW program, the ramifications of which are still being felt. But before getting to that, let's talk about the program for a moment. It was known as Project Coast. In the span of less than a decade, it became one of the most sophisticated CBW programs in the world. This was largely due to the convert, interna convert international support the program received. Most extensive support came from three nations, the US, the UK, and Israel. The latter was crucial to South Africa's CBW program and may have reaped the greatest rewards from it. Taiwan also appears to have contributed, which is interesting in light of the PRC's arms deals, the People's Republic of China's arms deals with apartheid South Africa, which were quite extensive during the 1980s. Arms Corps was deeply in bed with the PRC in moving communist weapons into Southern Africa. This was the major source of AK-47s or whatever the Chinese counterpart of that is known flooding into Southern Africa during this time. And there was a lot of this stuff I should add. Again, a lot of the countries where South African special forces were operating in were controlled by nominally regimes nominally allied to Moscow, so they were getting Soviet military technology. This typically meant AK-47s in mass. So the South African forces operating in these zones, as well as their proxies, needed access to Soviet military weapons as well, and especially ammunition so that they could keep them supplied. 
this was big business for the Chinese. So again, you know, this also kind of gets into some of the blurred lines here. You've got the PRC's theoretical ally, the Soviet Union, backing several proxy wars via its own patsy in Cuba and Southern Africa, while simultaneously, the People's Republic of China is also arming the South Africans so they can pass these weapons on to kill the Cubans and other Russian proxies. It's just wonderful how all this stuff works, isn't it? But let's get back to Project Coast for now. It has long been believed that South Africa was researching biological weapons that could target a populace based on the race. Israel would have an obvious interest in such a weapon as well. But China, you well, it has a limited amount of biological diversity, and it would be especially vulnerable to such a weapon. Thus, the PRC and Taiwan would both have obvious reasons to keep abreast of such research. Interesting, South Africa also consulted with regimes in Iran, Iraq, the Philippines, North Korea, Croatia, and even Colombian drug cartels. It seemed that early on, ideology was just not a big factor in this program or the network behind it. So let's explore this subject for a moment, shall we? Project Coast was located within the SADF Medical Service, or SAMS, or SAM. This unit, in turn, was part of the SADF Special Forces. All SAM's personnel were also Special Forces officers who underwent special service training. Let that sink in for a moment. By the late 1980s, this was allegedly, Project Coast I'm talking about here, was allegedly the second most advanced CBW program in the world its only rival being that of the Soviet unions. And it was being run directly by the South African special forces. This was akin to SOCOM running the US's entire CVW program. This is indicative of the unprecedented degree of power of special operations forces wielded in apartheid South Africa. Project Coast was headed by the notorious Dr. Wouter Bassoon. In many cases, he reported directly to Defense Minister Magnus Milan and Special Forces Chief Kat Liebenberg. These two generals were at the apex of what uh, the Civilian National Intelligence Service referred to as the SADF's Finger Ring, I believe, or Inner Circle. Bassan was also part of this network, which was composed almost entirely of South African and Rhodesian special operators, operators or counterinsurgency specialists. This may have also constituted a parallel command structure in the SADF and the actual puppet masters behind Coast, and really most of the other black stuff that was being going on in the country for that matter. It's also interesting in light of some of the research Project Coast was involved with. So the chemical component of Project Coast was tasked with developing what were referred to as crowd control substances. To this end, it explored some interesting drugs, most notably MDMA, more commonly known as ecstasy or molly, BC, and Mandrex, which is more commonly known as quaaludes in the US. All of these substances were directly produced by Project Coast. 
It also researched street drugs such as cannabis and LSD and made ketamine available to operatives in the field. Now, keep in mind, all of this was being overseen by the SADF Special Operations Forces towards the late 1980s and private company was set up and contracted with the SADS Special Forces. It was known as Executive Outcomes, and it would later become one of the most celebrated or infamous private military companies in history. But before EO became involved in paramilitary activities, it had an entirely different purpose. It was founded to teach neuro-linguistic programming, or NLP, to South African Special Forces. Yes, folks, you heard that right. This is a kind of Jedi mind trick used by many top cults such as Nexium. It was also promoted in our own military by the likes of Colonel John Alexander during the 1980s, another special operator. So, to recap, during the mid-1980s, the South African Special Forces were deeply involved in researching things like neurolinguistic programming, MDMA, BZ, and other mind-altering substances. And this was at a time when many of the rank-and-file special operation operators were former guerrillas who had been turned. This is why I think there was a very pointed reason in making the mind control scientists in the updated version of the Manchurian candidate South African. An argument could be made that one of the most successful super soldier programs ever conducted was carried out in South Africa during the 1980s. And just to put a little bit of perspective on this before I turn this over to George, finally, there was a rather a famous battle, I cannot remember the name of it now, but it was a fought around 1986 between Cuban forces and the famous 32nd Battalion of South Africa, which later provided the backbone of executive outcome. There were not more than a few hundred of these uh, guys in 32nd Battalion. The Cubans, along with the combined force from the MLPA, had almost 20,000 troops. The South Africans had about 800. Okay, they were outnumbered at 20 to 1 at times in this battle in Angola. They absolutely mopped the floor with the Cuban and MLPA forces, despite what you hear. Yes, I understand the Cubans have tried to claim victory for this for a lot of years. Their basis for that was the fact that the 32nd Battalion was not able to totally destroy their entire army. So yeah, that was a great showing, guy. But otherwise, it was a humiliating defeat for the Cuban forces and really managed to do something that the United States and billions of dollars of funding and multiple Q attempts and so forth had not managed to do. And that was to break Cuba's uh, military backbone and their ability to project force abroad. So, yeah, the 32nd Battalion did a hell of a lot more than a lot of U.S. counterparts did with a lot less than that decade against the Cubans. That's for damn sure. All right, George, let's get into Stephen Hatfield for a moment. Hatfield was an American special operator who sent, spent a considerable amount of time in Southern Africa during the latter stages of the Cold War. What can you tell us about this character and his links to the Rhodesian and South African CBW programs? And what became of Mr. Hatfield in the aftermath of apartheid, sir? 
Yeah, well, I'm sure that a lot of people who are listening probably have heard the name Stephen Hatfield before, because, of course, he was the first major so-called person of interest in the 2001 uh, anthrax attacks here in the U.S. But before that, and this uh, really did come out in the initial reporting on Hatfield when he first came out of the suspect, that he has a background that is incredibly indicative, as you say, of having worked for these uh, biological and chemical warfare programs for the apartheid states in Africa, both in Rhodesia and in uh, South Africa. And you know, really, when you look at Hatfield's entire background going back to his college years, it pretty much looks like a, uh, a profile of someone who was recruited into the intelligence services in college and then essentially you know, was sort of working as a double agent for the U.S. military intelligence and the uh, explicitly, you know, apartheid forces in Rhodesia and later South Africa. And so really, you know, it begins with uh, Hatfield attending Southwestern College, which was a pretty, you know, small Methodist-run university in Kansas in 1971. And he is majoring at the time in, uh, you know, basically in the medical field, you know, biology, attempting to go into become a doctor, and in the middle of it, very early into his college career, he takes a rather curious uh, detour. He, uh, when he's age 19, so it's only like not even a year later, he takes basically eight months off of college to abruptly go to the Belgian Congo at the time, the Belgian Congo, or and uh, were and join this uh, Methodist, <laughs> this incidentally Methodist-run clinic that was set up there in back in 1960. Uh, which is directed by a husband and wife pair, uh, Dr. Glenn S. Truth, that's spelled E-S-C-H-T-R-U-T-H, and his wife, Lena S. Truth, uh, you know, just shows up on basically on their doorstep and, you know, volunteers and says he wants to help, you know, give medical care to this uh, region. And, you know, they, they don't, supposedly, they don't really know what to make of this, uh, this 19-year-old who just shows up, but they decide to immediately take him in and so he works there for a bunch of time and then you know, after works for those eight months, then he goes back to school and finishes up his degree. Uh, in the meantime, you know, in his time working there, he is said to have fallen in love with their daughter, uh, Caroline, who a couple years later, he ends up going back there and marrying her. The strange thing about it though, uh, I mean, a couple of strange things, first of all, uh, he is 19 years old when he goes over there. Caroline is only about 15 years old at the time. So that's a little bit strange, but, you know, uh, what can you do? And uh, the other odd thing about it that is not really talked about is that Caroline, incidentally, was born on a U.S. Air Force base. She was born at Patrick Air Force Base in, I believe, Florida. So that in and of itself points to... Uh, either Glenn or Lena having some kind of a military, uh, you know, military background. So, you know, their idea that, you know, that they came over and they just happened to be these well-meaning Methodists. They went over to the, you know, then explicitly, you know, Belgian controlled Congo and you know, set up a medical facility there out of the goodness of their hearts may not be exactly accurate. And uh, supporting that, uh, supporting that a bit later is, uh, there's something that happens to Glenn a bit later that also uh, supports that. But getting back into the timeline, you know, after Hatfield finishes his school, he graduates uh, from Southwestern in you know, June of 1975. And then he immediately goes into the U.S. 
uh, into the U.S. Army, he actually goes to Fort Bragg of all places and signs up for the uh, you know, U.S. Uh, Army Institute for Military Assistance. You know, he he will brag and say that he joined the special forces there. Officially, he he got processed out. You know, he couldn't meet their qualifications, and so he ended up in the Army National Guard instead. Of course, you know whether that's actually true or a cover for something deeper is uh, up for some level of debate. But what's interesting is that at the same time that he is openly acknowledged to have begun his service in the US Army, he also happens to end up back in Africa. And uh, per, his, per his resume, he actually ends up joining none other than the Rhodesian SAS, uh, the C Squadron of the Rhodesian SAS, which, uh, as you mentioned, is you know one of the major entities that is behind all of this uh, terror and repression. So at the same time that he is serving in the U.S. Army at you know starting at Fort Bragg, he's also in the SAS. And again, you know this is something that when it was came out in the middle of the anthrax attacks, uh, stories you know was suggested that maybe he was just popping up his resume and lying. But there actually are multiple corroborations of this that a researcher uh, named uh, Jeffrey Bale was able to secure. Uh, there was a a former uh, former SAS member had a memoir where he wrote about uh, this SAS member named Peter Mick Elise, and he actually wrote in his book about how he remembered a quote Steve Hartful, uh, which almost certainly is just a butchering of the name Steve Hatfill, who was serving in the special branch, which uh, indeed is the exact same branch known to be involved in chemical and biological warfare uh, back then, and yeah. Uh, Hadfield also claimed on his resume to be part of the the, Sel the Selu Scouts, uh, which a an unidentified uh, source uh, of bales from the S from the South African Defense Forces actually ended up later confirming to him that he was part of that, uh, working in the medical field of the met as a medical orderly. And there were also multiple uh, friends of Hatfield's from back then who ended up saying like, "Yeah, he was bragging to us about." being a double agent uh, at the time. So Hatfield was down there uh, essentially, you know, serving apparently both in the U.S. Army and in the Rhodesian forces at the same time. He ends up uh, marrying Caroline, the person he fell in love with back when he was 19 and she was only 15, which is, seems to be a bit of a pattern that many of these uh, assets of intelligence services often have. But in the mean, there's something a, a year later that really shakes their marriage to the core, which is that her father, Glenn, ends up being uh, kidnapped and then later murdered by uh, the by Angolan rebels who were uh, backed by the Soviet and the Cuban forces. So in 1977, he is murdered, which is quite possibly another indication, along with the fact that he, uh, you know, that his daughter was born on a military base, that there was quite possibly some intelligence background that he had, hence his uh, targeting by these Soviet and Cuban forces. And you know, ultimately the marriage breaks up the next year, uh, but Hatfield stays behind in Africa for a very lengthy period of time after that. He ends up deciding that he wants to continue his medical education and you know, get more advanced degrees. And actually uh, it's, you know, late, later comes out that he didn't just decide to do this on their own. He actually decided to do this because his uh, handler, his handlers in the, uh, his handlers in the you know, very closely aligned uh, SADF force, SADF forces, which absorbed much of what you know used to be the Rhodesian forces back when Rhodesia was still a 
uh, country, uh, they basically wanted him to go back to school and gain more expertise in the uh, medical field. And specifically, he spent the next really 14 years uh, studying in microbiology, microbial genetics, uh, hematology, meaning disease, diseases of the blood, basically studying all sorts of things that you know you would want if you wanted to end up in a biowarfare related field. And in the meantime, you know, while he's doing all of this, he also maintains a very close relationship with these apartheid paramilitary forces over there in Africa. He, uh, he claims on his resume that he actually spent 14 months uh, as the staff physician for the South African National Antarctic Expedition. And he also, uh, you know, strived, you know, being a member of FADF's medical battalion during that whole time. Also, many of his school, uh, his peers at school, when he was, you know, getting all this education, remembered him bragging about training bodyguards for uh, for uh, Eugene Ter Terry Blanche's uh, AWB, which is another one of those, you know, you know, violent paramilitary pro-apartheid forces. So he is constantly, you know, talking about how of all of his connections to these this underground entity, he's gaining all this knowledge that would help him for, you know, to affect biowarfare. And he's affiliated with the exact same entities in the South African mil military and intelligence forces that are involved in this kind of work. Uh, now, ultimately, he, you know, finishes up his education, and then he, uh, he ultimately leaves, uh, leaves South Africa in 1994 for a brief stint at Oxford University. He you know, he claims on his resume that he got a PhD in hematology. PhD actually never comes through. It is rejected for, uh, you know, insufficient standards. He does present himself as having one, though. And nevertheless, he obviously did attain a pretty substantial amount of knowledge in this stuff. But anyway, after his brief time at Oxford, he then goes back to the U.S. where he, you know, he really has, for whatever reason, this guy who was born and raised in the U.S. decided that he would much rather spend his majority of his post of his post college years and really his whole education in these foreign countries that are not exactly renowned for their political stability which is interesting in and of itself and uh, of course he began his uh, substantial time there as a offic officially part of the US military but he ultimately comes back and then he immediately starts joining the uh, shall we say the US side of entities that are involved in biowarfare he uh, briefly works for NIH, and then he makes the jump over to the uh, U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases, uh, which is based at Fort Detrick. And of course, that is rather infamous for doing biowarfare research. And like you said before, the, all the people who claim, you know, in whether it's in the U.S. or in Rhodesia or South Africa or anywhere else, who try to claim rather disingenuously that they're only researching, uh, you know, biowarfare for defensive purposes really misses the point that you can't study the defense without knowing how to uh, use it offensively. That, you know, there really is no separation in any practical sense between these types of research. And so Fort Dietrich is, for all intents and purposes, doing biowarfare research. And that is where Steve Hatfield, who has just spent the last uh, nearly two decades learning all about this stuff in South Africa and also working for their own military and intelligence forces, ends up back at a US military institute that really is the premier location for biological warfare. Uh, so he uh, at Fort Dietrich happened to be studying various biological, you know, terror threats, uh, 
particularly in, I would say, rather interestingly, some of the ones he's uh, especially notable for studying are Ebola and Marburg disease, which happen to be, you know, two diseases that are very prevalent in Africa, especially. And actually, there was back in 1975, which incidentally is, uh, you know, right around the end of his college career and right when he started the, uh, you know, right when he started his service for both the U.S. military and the uh, the, the SASC squadron at the same time, there is an outbreak of Marburg disease in uh, Rhodesia and also Johannesburg, which uh, may or may not be a coincidence, but certainly is some interesting timing on Hatfield's part. Now, when he is, uh, when, when Hatfield, you know, he gets a start at Fort Detrick, he actually ends up meeting a, a guy named Bill, Pat, uh, Bill Patrick, who is one of the sort of premier uh, people in the U.S. known to be involved in bioweapons actually and find kind of a chillingly held a bunch of patents for the weaponization of anthrax. He became, you know, sort of the uh, golden, Hatfield became the golden child of Patrick in a way. Patrick becoming a very you know, respected mentor and thinking very highly of Hatfield, even inviting him to his own house where Bill Patrick, oddly enough, had lab equipment at the house that was able to make anthrax into the type of powder that you know you might later see uh, you know show up in the 2001 attacks. Anyway, uh, it was because of Bill Patrick's uh, really you know, affirmation, you know, vouching for Hatfield, that Hatfield was then able to move on to a uh, one of the most infamous private military contractors in the United States, uh, SAIC, Science Applications International Corporation, which is very infamous in uh, Washington as perhaps the most thinly veiled CIA front in the entire region. So Hatfield makes the jump from uh, Fort Detrick to SAIC in 1999, and he becomes a, uh, what else but a bioterror consultant, you know, doing all of these uh, instructions on bio, biological, you know, bioterror preparedness, training all these people in the military and the intelligence services, you know, JSOC people at Fort Bragg, people from the DIA, the CIA, Navy SEALs, all about counterterrorism, about how to deal with weapons of mass destruction, particularly bio-warfare oriented weapons of mass destruction. So really, you know, Hatfield has this entire very, very provocative uh, career where he you know, was clearly doing dual service in the, you know, du dual service with the US military and also these uh, Rhodesian and South African military entities that are involved in Project Coast. Yeah, multiple confirmations that he is part of their uh, medical work in particular uh, in these uh, in these forces. And then, of course, when he ends up back in the U.S., he is once again, you know, quite the expert in biological warfare and is, was explicitly working in biological warfare. And of course, uh, not not too long after, you know, he you know, ends up there at SAIC and doing his work, you know, you have 9-11. And then very shortly after that, the, uh, the anthrax attacks with, you know, sent to a couple targets, you know, sent to the, to American Media International down in Florida and sent, sent to a couple of uh, very high level congressmen, right as the Patriot Act is about, is under consideration. So very, you know, this is basically, you know, really ratchets up the already high fear over what happened with 9-11, it was clear that there's not, you know, now not just a regular terror attack, a biological terror attack, you know, and even has the associated letters, you know, uh, death to America, death to Israel, 
you know, Allah is great, you know, a note sent along with the anthrax letters that are very clearly meant to imply that this is a continuation of Al-Qaeda's terrorism. And that is indeed the line that the Bush administration pushes for a while. But, you know, as, as it's investigated, it quickly becomes clear that the anthrax uh, that was used in these letters only could have originated from a U.S. government lab. It's a very particular strain of anthrax that was being worked on at Fort Detrick and also in a couple other locations, such as the Dugway Proving Ground uh, out in Utah. So, you know, the investigators are tracing their leads, trying to find anyone really who, you know, could be involved in this type of uh, bioterror. And because of the means by which this anthrax was sent, there is a very select number of people who really have this kind of expertise, you know, uh, the ability to, you know, refine it into this fine powder that, is, you know, is sent along in these letters. And ultimately, as the FBI talks to people about who could have done this, the name of Stephen Hatfield keeps coming up again and again. And Hatfield, you know, was known to boast about how he had expertise in both wet and dry biological agents, which is very, again, a very unique skill set. And so Hatfield's name kept coming up. And as, you know, they dig in, there are many, many circumstantial clues pointing to uh, Hatfield. You know, the fact that he, uh, when he was at FAIC, See, he actually ran a project where he hired none of Bill Patrick, his former mentor, to look into the danger of, of all things, anthrax being sent through the mail. One of these sort of chilling things that actually links back potentially to his time in, uh, you know, to his time in, in medical school in Africa is that he was uh, in 1984 attending this medical school in Zimbabwe. Uh, you know, after Rhodesia became, after Rhodesia no longer was not Rhodesia anymore, uh, this medical school happened to border a suburb called Greendale. And uh, one of the anthrax letters had a return address uh, to the non-existent Greendale school, which uh, certainly when they realized that about Hatfield uh, stuck out, if nothing else. And then there were other things too that made Hatfield appear very suspicious, such as the fact that not long before the attacks occurred, he uh, got himself a prescription for Cipro, the anti-anthrax drug, which some people might remember is also the same drug that the White House abruptly started taking uh, in the aftermath of 9-11. So, you know, that interesting that both the White House and Hatfield appeared to very fortunately for themselves take an anti-anthrax drug right before the anthrax attack did rock the nation. He actually got this prescription for Cipro from a man named John Urbanetti, who used to be Richard Nixon's physician, uh, who basically Urbanetti was a you know, doctor at the Yale Medical School. And he actually contributed to a US Army Medical Research Institute of Chemical Defense report in 2008 called Medical Aspects of Chemical Warfare. So he uh, clearly the person with writing Hatfield this uh, prescription for Cipro seems to have had some involvement in the quote unquote defense against biological and chemical warfare himself, which uh, makes this very interesting once again. Now, on the flip side of this, you know, and ultimately Stephen Hatfield was officially exonerated, uh, you know, claimed that the FBI moved too fast. He had nothing, to, you know, there was no evidence he had any real thing to do with this. And so, uh, you know, ultimately we paid out a multi-million dollar settlement as a form of apology from the government. And it is possible certainly that Hatfield was uh, put out of the fall guy or maybe even a very convenient uh, Patsy or something. And one of the potential clues to that effect is that he curiously, uh, you know, you know, he had at the time a secret clearance, which enabled him to you know, work for SAIC and 
uh, give all these lectures to the military people on biowarfare. But curiously, in August of 2001, just a month before 9-11 and the anthrax attacks, he, uh, the CIA basically uh, had him flunk his polygraph, said that he flunked his polygraph test. And supposedly, uh, according to an article in the American Prospect, I believe he actually flunked his polygraph test over dishonest answers to uh, what he was doing over in Rhodesia back in the uh, 70s, which is interesting. And so not only was his clearance that they refused to give him a higher clearance that he wanted, he ultimately got his clearance suspended by the Pentagon, and then he was fired from SAIC the next year, just in time for him to end up under suspicion for the anthrax attacks. So if, it is, if, as it appears to be the case, Haskell was working as some kind of covert operative, you know, between both the U.S. and uh, the uh, South African forces as well. You know, it's possible that he was, you know, had a background that seemed, you know, perhaps, you know, legitimate enough to make him the fall guy and that they decided to, you know, cut him loose at that point. Uh, it's also possible, I mean, I mean, it's also possible, you know, that he genuinely was uh, involved directly to some extent. And uh, that certainly is one of the great mysteries of the anthrax attacks. But, uh, there can be no doubt that he was involved in biowarfare throughout his career and that he appeared to have been, as you know, Havi was boasting to people at the time back when he was in Africa, a double agent for both a double agent between the uh, US and the SADF and their aligned forces. And so what's interesting as well, uh, just this sort of curious uh, footnote to the whole thing is that uh, Hatfield later after he gets his big payout, he shows up again in a rather prominent capacity because he is brought on to Donald Trump's coronavirus response task force in 2020 to formulate the proper uh, response of the administration to the crisis. He also is ending up uh, multiple times on Steve Bannon's uh, podcast as a guest, oddly enough. And even, you know, at one point have the debate with Steve Bannon about whether or not COVID originated from China. So more, uh, you know, the world is a very bizarre place when you look at the trajectories that figures like Haskell will follow. And actually Haskell ended up being shunted on the Donald Trump's election fraud task force in 2020, you know, for some reason relocated from medical expertise to finding proof of election fraud on Trump's behalf. Uh, after the 2020 election went down, although Hatfield, per his public statements, really had no issue with this. He was more than happy to uh, help Donald Trump uh, with this endeavor. So exactly what Hatfield, you know, Hatfield is certainly a rather bizarre character and prone to a lot of uh, embellishment and uh, overstatement of things at the same time. He is undoubtedly very well connected to this murky underworld of biological and chemical warfare. And very much involved with the uh, effort with the South African defense establishment per multiple sources and uh, to see that thread its way through our uh, through our history is you know, various potentially sobering reality of what uh, of these bio work of these global bio warfare programs. Absolutely. And I mean, um, you know, there's also, I think, the distinct possibility that Hadfield was, uh, in fact, a triple agent. Uh, part of a, a kind of underground syndicate that we'll talk about here at the uh, end of this presentation. Uh, but there are 
two points that I, I wanted to make here before we move on to our next section right quick. Okay, so the first uh, is about the Green Berets, which Hatfield has, uh, it's not a dispute about whether Hatfield was or was not. But the thing that, uh, well, one of the things about the Green Berets that's often overlooked, okay, so first off, one of the principal purposes of the Green Berets, I should probably start off with, is uh, serving as military advisors. Obviously, they do a lot of other things uh, beyond that, but frequently when you hear about uh, U.S. military uh, advisors being sent to this nation or another to train their forces or to build up a rebel group or whatever, it's almost always the Green Berets who get this task. Now, this is uh, very crucial on a lot of levels. On the one hand, it... Uh, will uh, greatly influence the capabilities of a nation's military, which is quite significant for reasons that I'll get to here at the end of the presentation. And for another, it gives you direct access to a lot of the major figures in a nation's military and especially in their elite forces. And this is the thing the Green Berets have been aware of uh, from very much the beginning, and they have used this position to cultivate many of the leading figures in uh, the very the uh, nations, the various regimes that they've worked in. So, you know, kind of getting back to like what I was saying about uh, some of the work the Green Berets were doing spreading counterinsurgency doctrine in Latin America in the 60s and 70s. I mean, this really played into, um, frankly, a lot of the revolutions that uh, broke out there and ultimately climaxed in Operation Condor by the 1970s. But it started with Brazil, I think around 62 or something, Lansdale himself had gone there and had arranged uh, for Green Berets to help go and uh, train the military. They had uh, cultivated several of the uh, rising generals, and um, these men had ended up playing a role in the 64 coup d'etat uh, that brought the military into power in Brazil. And uh, this was kind of a pattern that would continue to repeat throughout Latin America. And, you know, really, it's never stopped. You know, so this is the thing, uh, one of the things about the Green Brace that's not really talked about a lot, but they're absolutely instrumental in uh, establishing U.S. influence over foreign militaries and steering them in directions that are advantageous to the U.S. A lot of times, I mean, when coups break out in a country by a nation's military uh, in uh, the support of U.S. interests, it's uh, probably had its roots in relationships forged by the Green Berets, quite frankly. Now, another aspect about this that I want to point out is that um, during, by the late 1970s, of course, uh, there was just absolutely no way that the U.S. could formally give support to, you know, the regimes of Rutesi and apartheid South Africa. Um, however, a lot of uh, ex-U.S. Uh, military personnel, and especially Green Berets and other special operators, ended up going to Rutesi and later apartheid South Africa to fight. Uh, you know, if you read some of the works uh, that uh, recount that whole era, I mean, a good one is uh, even Barlow's Against All Odds. It's principally about executive outcomes, but he's got some good stuff in there about the Bush Wars, too. And uh, he does casually mention that uh, there were uh, more than a few Americans serving in the ranks of uh, first the Rhodesian and then later the South African forces. Uh, and they... A big instrument in managing all this was uh, Soldier of Fortune magazine uh, run by, I think it was, was Robert Brown, George, do you recall? Yeah, Robert Brown of, uh, interestingly enough, I believe Boulder, Colorado, which is uh, 
curious destination in its own right for some of the cases like Jomine Ramsey murder. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's really spook and pedophile central in a lot of ways. Yeah, Brown shows up in a lot of stuff. I mean, of course, he was uh, involved in the uh, the Bay of Pigs debacle. It helped uh, secure some of the mercenary forces with this. And he's kind of had uh, an ongoing relationship covertly with, with the U.S. intelligence community for a lot of years. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's not so much a, an issue now with uh, the rise of private military companies. But back in the you know 50s, 60s, when the use of mercenaries was a lot more informal shall we say soldier of fortune magazine was a big part of arranging uh you know these kinds of uh uh contracts or you know relationships whatever with um you know the uh the mercenary forces and the u.s intelligence community covertly obviously so as i'm trying to allude to here the u.s couldn't have direct involvement um with the armed forces of uh, South Africa or Rhodesia during this era. So obviously you couldn't send Green Berets there formally as advisors. But there would no, be nothing to stop Robert Brown and Soldier of Fortune magazine from recruiting quote-unquote former Green Berets to go to Rhodesia and South Africa to you know, serve in their forces uh, because that's what they wanted to do as private citizens, hypothetically. Okay, so anyway, that being said, let us move on here to our next section. So South Africa's descent into a full-blown gangster state occurred during the 1980s, and it was driven again by the so-called Binkerine, whatever, the inner circle of the SADF, as I noted before. And this network was led by the generals Magnus Milan and Kat Liebenberg and largely consisted of special operations personnel. By the late 1980s, it was deeply involved in a litany of criminal activity. A lot of this grew out of a covert assassination, out of covert assassination programs the apartheid regime began to toy with during the late 1970s. By the mid-1980s, much of the wet work and other black activities was being managed by a convert unit in the special forces known as the Civil Coordination Bureau. This organization consisted almost entirely of former special operators and intelligence officers working through private companies. The CCC the CCB grew out of an earlier special forces assassination program known as Project Barnacle. It had been set up by former Sedosa Scout and SADF Special Forces founder Fitz Lutz around 1979. Sometime around the mid-1980s, Barnacle mutated into the more ambitious CCB. It was tasked initially with identifying, locating, and neutralizing enemies of the state. Later, it was also used to gather intelligence and disseminate disinformation. It was so secret, most South African special operators and intelligence officers were unaware of its existence. It was a global operation. 
there were eight regions. Well, technically there were 10, uh, but uh, one was involved with like logistics and, so, and financing, I think. And another one was maybe solely for intelligence or something like that. I can't recall off the top of my head, but they didn't have the physical locations the way the other eight regions did in areas of operation. So anyway, seven of these were in Africa, while region five consisted of the UK, Europe, and the Middle East. The CCB was set up as a private corporation, as were its regional headquarters and affiliates. This was to distance it from the SADF proper. <clears throat> this is one of the interesting things about the CCB. It was similar in many ways to Operation Condor, which ran throughout South Africa's Southern Cone during the 1970s. Sponsored by Chile and other regimes there, it was a transnational assassination and terror network that sought to eliminate enemies of these various military regimes anywhere in the world. The CCB had the same goal, but it was only nominally connected to the South African government, whereas Condor was ran rather directly by the uh, militaries and intelligence services of those nations, especially the DINA out of Chile. But anyway, uh, as for the CCB, it was basically used, it basically used private companies rather than the security services for its actions. Indeed, CCB members had to retire from the SADF prior to joining the CCB. This was a key step among Western governments as they transitioned from the deep state to the DD private beginning in the 1970s. As with many things, apartheid South Africa was a trailblazer. So yeah, you know, this is all like really interesting. You've got retired former Green Berets being recruited through a magazine to go there and work with their special forces. And then later you see this uh, interesting setup of ex-South African special operators setting up private companies to carry out a lot of these black activities. You know, it uh, became a bit of a beast, shall we say. So let's get back to that in the CCB. From the mid-1980s till roughly uh, 1990, apartheid South Africa carried out 82 extrajudicial killings, the bulk of which were performed by the good old CCB. The outfit was also implicated in the assassination of Swedish Prime Minister Olaf Palme in 1986 and the 1988 Lockerbie bombing. The CCB worked closely with Project Coast, ensuring it had access to CBW agents to carry out its assassinations. Some of these agents may have also contributed to funding the outfit. They certainly helped set up ex-CCB members in the post-apartheid years, which I will elaborate on in a little bit here. So besides paramilitary activities and other covert operations involving these special operators and psychological warfare and information operations may have also been involved. There are indications that the CCB may have had some involvement in these things. One of the most notorious figures linked to the CCB was a former South African police officer known as Craig Williamson, who became deeply involved in the apartheid regime's wetworks. But besides assassinations, Williamson also appears to have been engaged in psychological warfare. This brought him into the orbit of the infamous Washington lobbyist, Jack Abramoff. George, what can you tell us about all of this? 
Yeah, once again, you know, Abramoff kind of like Hatfield is a figure who's probably, uh, you've heard about him from a lot of the George W. Bush era scandals, but may not, a lot of people may not be aware of the extent to which he was essentially a, an asset and a very witting asset of the South African intelligence services in terms of propagandizing for the apartheid state. You know, and ultimately, by the time you got to, uh, especially in the 80s and the nature of apartheid was not exactly something that could be denied or you know justified it was not politically tenable to uh outright defend apartheid in public so the strategy really became and your know, strategy among the uh the sadf trying to garner support in foreign countries like the u.s and well certainly their allies here in the u.s who wanted to continue supporting these uh this outright fascist uh, state there had to come up with a more creative strategy, which was rather than talk about and try to defend apartheid itself, uh, demonize the opposition, like 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 Nelson Mandela's African National Congress as being communist and you know a tool of the Soviet Union. And that was a strategy that would ultimately find a lot of favor with uh, prominent Republicans in Washington and sort of the. Uh, the way that that was achieved, or one of the big ways that was achieved, was by using an up-and-coming figure in the student, uh, in the GOP student movement, uh, named Jack Abramoff. Uh, Jack Abramoff had become the chairman of the college Republican National Committee uh, in the early '80s, and of course, he was associated with many of these conservative groups. You know, he, throughout the '80s, he was a member of the Council for National Policy and associated with uh, the pro-contra group Citizens for America. So he was involved in all these right-wing causes from his student days. And uh, interestingly, in uh, 1983, you know, as the uh, chairman of the college RNC, the, you know, the CRNC, he made a trip to Johannesburg and met with members of the National Student Federation there, which was a essentially you know, the, the SADF, uh, you know, basically the, you know, the South Africa's own sort of, uh, you know, student right-wing movement there. Uh, and ended up meeting with uh, some of the individuals who were involved in it, particularly uh, Ru Russell Crystal, who was uh, an associate of Williamson and one of the key people who was involved in infiltrating student movements at the time. And Abramoff uh, hooked up with uh, Russell Crystal and Craig Williamson, these two South African military intelligence agents involved in the essentially the sabotage of anti-apartheid groups, especially among the student sect. and. Uh, not long after he got in touch with them, uh, you know, 1983, when he had this meeting and uh, the so-called International Freedom Foundation, the IFF, popped up in 1986, started ostensibly by Jack Abramoff. And Jack Abramoff will claim that this was a organization that was, you know, supported by all sorts of private donors in the U.S. and uh, try to make it seem, of course, like it's some big conservative grassroots thing. It will come out a decade later when uh, South Africa has entered its truth and reconciliation period that this entity, the IFF, was really a tool of the SADF from the very beginning. A lot of people who are involved will admit this. You know, Craig Williamson will outright admit uh, that he was running this operation. It was known in South African intelligence circles as Operation Babushka and was being used as a front for gathering intelligence on the opposition and of course as well a you know, attempt to uh, sway public opinion especially among you know the you know right-wing set in the republicans in congress who abramoff would be able to have some level of influence over you know and this was not you know it's been a not just by williamson another 
member of the South African military, uh, Colonel John Rolt, ended up admitting it later on when the Abramoff scandal was breaking in, in the mid-2000s under the Bush administration. There were the journalists for Harper's and Ken Silverstein who identified even more sources and pretty much you know, traced this entire plan back to the very first meeting that Abramoff had uh, with these people in you know, with these individuals in South Africa in 1983, that uh, you know that that was where that they identified him as being an ambitious and you know conservative figure in the U.S. that they could use for their purposes, and that they, and also you know his sources of Silverstein said you know Abramoff was in no way unaware of this, you know that this the IFF was receiving massive amounts of funding from uh, South African military intelligence. He was very much aware of where the money was coming from. He was on it. He was basically being briefed by the uh, South African, by people like Williamson and Crystal, by essentially the handlers of his in South African military intelligence. This was a total front organization for these apartheid forces, and Abramoff was dutifully serving as the front man for it. Uh, and you know, in, ter in terms of what he did as part of the IFF, in all sorts of very brazen things, and it was sort of a meeting of the minds, not just for the you know in apartheid forces directly he at one point organized a convention in angola uh for all of these different sort of you know fascist paramilitary forces to come together he had contras from nicaragua he had the the unita rebels in angola uh you know under the command of jonas uh, savimbi he had the mujahideen from afghanistan the cia-backed forces who of course would later turn into entities like the taliban and al-qaeda so he was, uh, I mean, this was basically a sort of organizing center for a lot of these uh, front groups for, you know, for U.S., you know, for U.S. intelligence and, you know, underground fascist networks uh, within, within the United States and their allies abroad. So this was really what the IFF was up to, you know, getting together all these entities, you know, coming up with puff pieces for them, you really promoting the whole idea that they were, uh, that this was, you know, that these were noble entities fighting against communism you know there was never any focus on the horrible crimes that they were committing or you know the horrible institutions that they were defending it was that these were oppositions to soviet influence and that was the key message that was being hammered back and forth with all of these uh, you know with all these people you know for example when abramoff actually came back from his trip back in 1983 you know he immediately the college rnc passed a resolution that was condemning so-called Soviet and KGB propaganda about how bad it was in South Africa. So it was a whole very well-organized propag you know, propaganda campaign done by people like Abramoff and members of his orbit to claim that it was in fact Soviet propaganda that, you know, that apartheid was, uh, you know, causing massive, you know, massive repression of, you know, especially, you know, these black individuals in South Africa. It was an entire, I mean, a very ballsy, uh, scam, honestly, and that was what Abramoff was doing while serving as a direct asset of the SADF. Uh, so, you know, and it wasn't just, Ab and it, like I said, it wasn't just Abramoff on his own shouting into the wind. He was able to get some pretty high-level Republicans to join in with him, including, uh, for example, Rep uh, Representative Dan Burton, who was the ranking Republican congressman on the, you know, Committee for African Affairs. You know, someone who was that amount of influential in the in that matter was able to was essentially swayed by this message of you know opposing you know rather you know what should have been arguably rather common sense things like you know sanctions against the apartheid uh, against the apartheid regime there that you know 
that you know that essentially using the specter of this being communist propaganda to block these measures and continue to defend the regime well past any point where the U.S. should have had any sort of doubts about whether about its uh, moral failings. It was, Abramoff was an important vessel for allowing this, uh, arguably for allowing apartheid to last as long as it did. And his propaganda that he was spreading on behalf of the South African Defense Force really got to the perhaps the worst when he ended up leaving the IFF in 1989. And right as he was doing so, a movie that he had produced and actually uh, helped write the script for called Red Scorpion came out. And it was really a, a obvious, you know, really an obvious uh, propaganda piece that essentially it had Dolph Lundgren as this uh, Soviet operative who was sent in to murder these anti-communist rebels. And then he ends up being captured by them and ends up being swayed to their side and then joins them and they all band, band together and defeat the communist-backed forces and it's this big you know action you know act kind of action hero junk film that not only was not good on a film level but was recognized by a lot of anti-apartheid uh, activists as being you know rather obvious uh dis disinformation attempting to sway public opinion about the you know who are the about who the bad guys were in this context and uh it turns out that this film you know which obviously you know if, if it came out in 1989 just as he left the iff was being produced while he was part of the iff and the film uh was made in south africa it was filmed in south africa with the military you know helping out with the military allowing uh, the filmmakers to go there and also giving them you know trucks and other heavy equipment for the film even using soldiers of the SADF to be extras in the film. So this was uh, no doubt a very, uh, a project that the South African Defense Force was uh, heavily supporting. And Williamson would later admit that the film was, you know, quote, funded by our guys, unquote. So this was no doubt a, pr a project that South Africa tried to make to puff up their own image as much as Abramoff would heatedly deny it and try to claim that, you know, that there was no way that no way that South Africa made it. He had no idea about any sort of connection like that. But, you know, those facts that could come out uh, ultimately speak for themselves that Abramoff was a an asset of the uh, the apartheid state, and particularly the military intelligence uh, under the SADF to allow to lobby important uh, political figures in the U.S. and prevent decisive action from being taken against uh, apartheid South Africa and really keep it hanging around for as long as it did. Yeah, and another thing I, uh, I want to point out about this too, right quick. Um, <clears throat> but let, let's just say, um, in terms of Hollywood, um, there's been a lot of speculation for years now that uh, at least some uh, movies uh, have been used as covers by various studios to launder drug money uh, by. Uh, this is one of the reasons that was explained to me why certain movies are inexplicably green-lighted with uh, multi-million dollar budgets, uh, even though it's largely known in the industry that they're going to tank. It's a good way as a tax write-off to cover up uh, some of the illicit substances that are being run through all of this. Uh, again, hypothetically and theoretically, guys, hypothetically and theoretically, but... Um, 
And as we'll see, uh, the SADF was uh, most likely involved in quite a bit of that. And uh, well, it's interesting too, where they also, or at least I'm pointing this out, that this might have theoretically been a another reason why sponsoring a movie like this would have been uh, an interesting or appealing thing for them to do. Besides its obvious uh, propaganda value, uh, by the late 1980s, as I had you know, already been alluding to earlier, the apartheid regime was just uh, being hammered with sanctions left and right. So the movie might have also been seen as a, uh, a good way of laundering money uh, from the sales of, let's say, firearms or uh, maybe something else. So anyway, we'll uh, get back to that in a moment here, but keep that in mind. All right, so during the late 1980s, another significant development occurred regarding the CCB. It established contacts with <clears throat> the powerful private, uh, British private military racket. The genesis of the modern-day private military companies traced back to British intervention in Yemen during the early 1960s. Sir David Stirling, who hailed from a storied Scottish clan, both connected to Alistair Crowley, an instrumental in the creation of modern-day special operations forces, and a, uh, well, this is not uh, Sterling, but uh, the other individual involved setting up this operation, he was a future Lissacal chairman. They set in events in motion resulting in the creation of WatchGuard International. So this is generally considered to be the first modern day PMC. It also loomed <clears throat> like a specter over many other latter day British PMCs for years afterwards, which we'll get to a bit here. A lot more on this topic can be found in my book, A Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment, book one. You guys are about to get a sneak peek at some of the material that will turn up in book two. Uh, also, my other book, uh, Strange Tales of the Parapolitical, deals a lot with the PMCs and some of this early history, too, if you want a little bit more in-depth explanation of this topic. But anyway, by the early 1980s, Sterling had established another PMC. KAS Enterprises. Like WatchGuard before it in later elite British PMCs following it, KAS was largely an extension of the SAS, hence the name. During the late 1980s, KAS was contracted by Prince Bernard of the Netherlands, founder and longtime leading figure of the Builder Group, to carry out something known as Operation Lock. Now, before getting into Locke, <clears throat> I want to emphasize that the best evidence indicates that it was just Prince Bernard and a few South African businessmen sponsoring these efforts. The World Wildlife Foundation and the 1001 Club are often linked to Locke, uh, but they do not appear to have been heavily involved uh, and really uh, only came uh, into the picture after it was well underway and really in decline. It hardly matters, though, as there are so many other curious connections. But first off, Operation Lock. In theory, it was an initiative to bolster private security for several wildlife reserves in several southern African countries, especially Zimbabwe during the late 1980s. Specifically, Locke was trying to stop the poaching of rhinos, which was a funding source of various groups during that era. 
Rhino tusks were a valuable black market commodity and it become only more so as the years have gone on. And they were trafficked along with drugs and guns in Southern Africa during this time and still. KS would provide additional security to these reserves, train their rangers and gather intelligence on the poaching rings to pass on to local authorities. However, there were red flags from the beginning. As was previously noted, KAS was in many ways an extension of the SAS, and its base of operations was in South Africa. The CCB infiltrated KAS and locked very early in the game. It's long been denied that the CCB exercised much influence over Locke or KAS, but both Sir David Sterling and the South African military were both supporting Uninta and Angola, as George just elaborated on. It later came out that both the SADF and Uninta were deeply involved in poaching rhinos in Angola, a point KAS had conveniently underestimated in their initial report and generally ignored afterwards. Another interesting point I will point out is that one of the primary agents dealing with KS was the guy George was just talking about, Craig Williamson. So, interesting. Might have been aware of maybe some black market poaching rings going on in Angola. Again, that's uh, another source of money that probably would have been laundered if it was uh, going to be used to procure arms and other goodies for the South African regime. Yeah. All right, while we're on the topic of mercenaries in South Africa during the 1980s, let's talk some Frank Camper for just a moment. This guy is also a character like so many of these other glorious human beings we've uh, been talking about this evening. So first off, tell us a bit about Mr. Camper George, then how he relates to apartheid South Africa. Right, Mr. Uh, Frank Camper was actually he, the operator of a pretty, uh, pretty well-connected mercenary school in Alabama, specifically Jefferson County, Alabama, which I should note is, first of all, very close to, uh, to pretty close to Birmingham and also only about a county over from uh, Walker County, Alabama, uh, which is home to Jasper. And Walker County, Alabama is well known as the hitman capital of the United States. So it's a pretty interesting milieu already that we're dealing with. And uh, the mercenary school that Camper was operating was had some very interesting people as uh, students throughout the years. And I should note actually that regards to what you were saying before about the sort of covert involvement of uh, you know magazines like Soldier of Fortune and getting these you know mercenaries who are not officially connected to any sort of mili- military structure uh, pretty much at arm's length and having them go on all these missions to hotspots whether that be in Latin America or Africa or anywhere else. Soldier of Fortune was in fact one of the many magazines with advertising this mercenary camp that Camper operated at the time. And uh, Camper would ultimately try to claim uh, rather schizophrenically that he was both, you know, he was just a mercenary teacher. He had no concern for the political leanings of who's training, but of course also made allusions to very pronounced involvement with uh, U.S. intelligence and to the, with the decidedly uh, right-wing oriented uh, aspect of U.S. intelligence. Uh, so some of the people that Camper trained uh, included uh, the, a bunch of Sikh extremists who were later involved in the bombing uh, in 1985 of an Air India flight. Uh, Also, 
uh, more related to the sort of, you know, the Abramoff and the people surrounding him, he had multiple people uh, who were involved, who were trainees of his who were involved with the Contras directly, basically mercenaries who graduated from the school, joining the Contras on raids in Nicaragua, one uh, editor of some a mercenary magazine. I don't think it was Soldier of Fortune, but one of the ones that was very similar to Soldier of Fortune, an editor actually talked about how you know, he was with a bunch of graduates of campus school and he went with them and went with the Contras on a raid in Nicaragua. And he described campus students as apparently being very well trained. So his uh, work certainly seems to have been doing the job. Uh, Camper was actually affiliated uh, pretty closely with the uh, Tom, uh, with Tom Posey, the civilian mil uh, material assistance or civilian military assistance, whatever name CMA really stands for. You know, he basically, he actually came up with this plan uh, Camper did to uh, basically have US mercenaries and Contras work together, which uh, as I mentioned, very much does seem to have happened in at least some context. Uh, he asserted this plan was called Project Pegasus. He wrote some report on this. He's actually sent it to military intelligence people, and this later came out in some of the Iran-Contra revelations when it happened. And some of the news reports even identified Camper as a military intelligence agent himself, which of course he officially was not, but his history does uh, point in that direction. You know, he, he would claim to have been a Vietnam veteran and said he got out of it in 1969 and then started being essentially a, a you know, private consultant effectively. He claimed to have uh, worked on behalf of the FBI to infiltrate left-wing groups. He also claimed to have trained Saudi Arabia's troops. Uh, and the weird thing is, you know, that Saudi Arabia, the airline, would say, you know, yeah, he worked for us, but he only worked for us as a mechanic, which I have to say seems a little bit at odds with the skill set that he seems to have had otherwise, that this guy who was about to run a mercenary school would not be employed as anything other than a mechanic. And to me, feels like a, a rather thinly veiled cover for what he was really doing, but that is the official denial in any case. Uh, but anyway, yeah, Camper was ultimately, you know, became this big mercenary school runner who was training these, you know, these soldiers of fortune all around uh, to go on these missions and associate with uh, entities like the Contras who were in the same, really were in the same sort of world uh, at the International Freedom Foundation. As I mentioned, Contras were part of the delegation in Angola joining the Unita Rebels, which were backed by South Africa, as you mentioned, and, uh, and all these other, you know, quote unquote, anti-communist forces, because of course that was the way that they were dressed up as, you know, anti-communists. And that was what, of course, what would make them attractive to be supported by, by Washington. And uh, ultimately, and so Camper would make the statement saying, you know, people I have trained are fighting in many parts of the world, Lebanon, South Africa, the Philippines, and, Cent and Central America. And uh, it doesn't take a lot of imagination if you think about what uh, kind of people he was training who went on to go in Central America and what side they fought on doesn't take a whole lot of guesswork to realize which side the mercenaries he trained uh, for South Africa ended up fighting on, whether it was on the side of the SADF or in opposition to them. And almost certainly was uh, tr these, any of these mercenaries who were trained by Camper were almost undoubtedly going to uh, join these pro-apartheid forces. Uh, and beyond the claim that he made about having mercenaries who end up fighting in South Africa, which of course can be dismissed as, you know, this guy is a big talker. And indeed many of the news articles did try to say he's just, you know, a person who makes, you know, just a braggart, makes all these wild claims, there's nothing more to it. 
there actually were uh, at least two people associated with uh, associated with CMA who were when they were arrested, they were actually arrested in Costa Rica on the ranch of a man named uh, John Hull, a farmer named John Hull, who by all appearances was a CIA asset who was allowing his ranch in Costa Rica to be used for paramilitary pro-contra forces. Two of these uh, individuals who were arrested as part of these CMA operations, uh, Peter Glibbery and John Davies, who were both British, uh, interestingly enough, they had been uh, you know, these, so these so-called soldiers of fortune who were in South Africa. Then they heard about an opportunity uh, to work with CMA over in uh, Nicaragua out over in Central America. So they ended up going from there, wherever they were positioned in South Africa to go over and start working with the uh, with these pro-contra forces instead. And they described how they met Frank Camper in the middle of this, in the middle of their job. They heard about his connections with the CIA and the DIA. So once again, confirmation not only of Frank Camper's intelligence ties persisting all throughout this, but also the fact that you had these soldiers of fortune who were sort of shared operationally speaking between both uh, South Africa and the uh, Contra War, which is very much in keeping with Dak Abramoff being a propagandist for both the South, both South Africa's forces and their various front groups and a propagandist for the Contras and the fact that these groups even rub shoulders directly at some points through the IFF, you know, that where the Abramoff is sort of the propaganda side of it, uh, people like Hamper were the actual paramilitary directly operational side of things. And uh, really illustrates the phenomenon that you were saying about how, of course, we were getting to a point where U.S. could not officially get by with supporting apartheid anymore. But you know, as long as they could, you know, use plausibly deniable assets who could be kept at arm's length from any official U.S. government structures, you know, or if they could even just, you know, confuse, you know, and delay the issue long enough, you know, with people like Abramoff getting people like, you know, politicians on his behalf to you know, try and halt halt debate and you know, and, you know, drag this process out. That it would still, you know, ultimately was serving this uh, interest, you know, slowing down any sort of progress on realizing the state for what it was and continuing to covertly arm it in the meantime. Does appear to be what the U.S. Uh, intelligent military and intelligence structure did for quite some time, and Camper is a very uh, pronounced manifestation of that. One third of just final note, not directly related to this, but. There's an interesting thing about Camper that he later ended up writing a book in 1997 called The MK Ultra Secret, which made the claim that Lee Harvey Oswald was acting under mind control in the Kennedy assassination. So suffice to say, uh, Camper does seem to have had some awareness of the uh, darker activities that the U.S. intelligence services got involved in, perhaps uh, some pronounced inside knowledge. Yeah, it's also interesting, too, that um, they were British uh, mercenaries that were uh, arrested for uh, working in both Nicaragua and South Africa. Of course, um, also during the 1980s, um, as part of the, uh, the uh, Contra activities there, uh, Oliver North had contracted a uh, British uh, PMC known as Keeney Meany Services, or KMS, um, one of the figures of Colonel Jim Johnson was also a part of this. Well, I mean, it was again, an extension of the uh, SAS basically, hence the name. I mean, previously we've been talking about KAS, this is KMS. 
uh, one of the founders of KMS, Kini Mini Services, uh, Colonel Jim Johnson, I believe, had also been a part of the same network with Sterling and Yemen and what have you, and the whole, you know, click that had started with WatchGuard International. Again, a lot of the uh, early British PMCs can be traced back to WatchGuard and this whole network. So anyway, it's interesting, too, that North is uh, also contracting with them at the same time, the KAS is uh working in South Africa. And of course, there's also the connection with Craig Williamson and these other figures. So yeah, this is all quite incestuous and you guys will see uh, even more so why here in just a moment. All right, so <clears throat> as apartheid began to collapse around 1990, many of the South African securocrats seem to have looked to the uh, the good old British PMC model as a means of retaining influence. And the British were more than happy to assist. The notorious PMC executive outcomes was started as a front company by the CCB officer, Evan Barlow. Throughout the 1990s, executive outcome received considerable support from sometime employer and investor, Tony Buckingham. Buckingham is a really interesting guy in his own right. He's believed to be British and a former member of the Special Boat Services. That is the UK's version of the Navy SEALs. By the early 1990s, Buckingham was a senior director in a mining and oil conglomerate known as Branch Heritage Group. Branch Heritage often collaborated with EO in Africa throughout the 1990s. They secured EO its first big contract in Angola in 1993 and later guaranteed their funding in Sierra Leone in exchange for rights to the nation's resources. <clears throat> Branch Heritage had major investments in virtually all areas where executive outcome was extensively deployed, with EO frequently stabilizing the country in order for Branch Heritage's mining operations to continue. Now, in fairness, it's often been said that EO uh, and the members of the uh, executive body of executive outcomes were getting mining concessions as well. As far as I can tell, they were not though I would imagine a lot of the directors were being handsomely paid regardless, but as far as I can tell, unless there were side deals, they themselves were not getting rights to uh, some of the natural resources. But anyway, later Buckingham would set up another infamous early PMC, Sandline International. This one was uh, formed by uh, former Scots guard Tim Spicer, Sandline would later contract EO for work in Sierra Leone and a disastrous coup attempt in Papua New Guinea. A shadowy figure linked in some capacity to KAS, Buckingham, EO, and Sandline is a former SAS officer, Simon Mann. He also went on to become a friend of Mark Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher's son as well, and another uh, rather disastrous coup attempt. But anyway, even Barlow has gone to great lengths to distance EO from man and possible links to David Sterling or KES as well. Of course, uh, there was a lot of accusations that uh, Sterling had helped set up EO and uh, that kind of thing. Same with man. But Mann uh, was, in fact, employed by Sterling for nearly a decade with KAS, 
Whether Mann was involved in Locke is unknown, but it would explain his later interest in Africa. Further, Mann also had links to famed SAS operator Big Fred Marifano, who was a Filipino. Marifano did in fact work on Project Locke for KAS during the late 1980s, being described as an integral part of the Locke team. And later, Big Fred was employed by Executive Outcomes in Sierra Leone. Reportedly, Mann is who recruited him for EO. Under Executive Outcomes, Marifano led a quote-unquote civil defense force comprised of Kamajar tribesmen. They were said to believe implicitly in the powder of Vudan and to be guided by spirits. In addition to these cultish vibes, they were also implication, implicated in numerous war crimes. Good God, Edward Lansdale just would have loved this type of thing. Anyway, nor was executive outcome, uh, and by extension, the network of PMCs that grew out of it, the only destination for former apartheid special operators. Another significant and rarely addressed PMC is Aranis International. This British PMC became a major player after procuring, procuring strategic concepts. A South African PMC established by former South African diplomat and military intelligence officer, Sean Clearly. Clearly strategic concepts and later Aranis appear to have had an ongoing rivalry with Barlow and other factions in EO. And this went on for decades. Uh, that's one of the other charming things about these characters that I'll get to in a moment. <clears throat> but anyway, the special operator capabilities weren't the only things being outsourced. In theory, the CBW program was dismantled and the labs were sewed off. This is Project Coast, I'm talking about kids. The major chemical warfare facility was sold to Dow Chemical, for instance. However, there is compelling evidence much proliferation occurred during the dismantling. When Coast began to break to the public around 1992, Walter Basin and other leading figures were sacked, but they were also tasked with dismantling Coast. What this amounted to is that much of the technical data was transferred to CD-ROMs before being destroyed. These CD-ROMs were then supposedly kept in secure safes where the actual CBW agents, while the actual CBW agents were destroyed. But in 1997, a sting operation netted uh, Bassan, who was arrested with over a thousand hits of MDMA manufactured at a CW facility and copies of these CD-ROMs. Basson was for many years the head of Project Coast, I should add. This was the latest instance in a pattern of dubious activities Basson had engaged in. During 1981, he began construction on a multi-million dollar RAND residence in the plush Petora suburb that was allegedly to be used as a high-end brothel. Also during that year, he was dispatched to Croatia where he procured 500 kilograms of quaaludes while misplacing 1.5 million rand. The following year, a SADF transport frequently used for secret missions was busted transporting quaaludes to so-called rugby enthusiasts. Reportedly, Bassan had helped arrange this shipment. It's interesting to note that large amounts of hallucinogenic drugs, most notably MDMA, began flooding Waster Cape Townships, the longtime heart of the domestic anti-apartheid movement during this time. 
So Bassan's trial started in 1999, and calling it juicy would be an understatement. He faced 67 charges, including the murders of over 200 people, drug trafficking, and fraud in the millions. What came out in court was that Bassan had started producing various hallucinogens during the mid-1980s and begun trafficking them at some point several years later. Prosecutors speculated that the destination for these drugs was the U.S., the U.K., and Europe. It's interesting to note that the U.K., which had the largest anti-apartheid movement in the world by the mid-1980s, was flooded with MDMA by decades in. And this badly undermined said movement. Bassan himself gave nearly nine weeks worth of testimony during the trial. During this time, he strongly indicated British and American scientists had helped the SDF develop the CBW agents that killed hundreds of African rebels and civilians. Apparently, it wasn't just the Americans either. Sometime during 1988 or 1989, Russian scientists gave him experimental growth hormones to toy with. This at the time when the Cold War was apparently ongoing. It was the beginning of what appears to become a lucrative trade Bassan had with the Eastern Bloc. Apparently the Russians were who also played a role in the Croatian deal. This underscores how much Southern Africa had become a laboratory and a gangster state simultaneously by the early 90s. Arms, drugs, blood diamonds, pieces of endangered species, and above all, highly secretive defense technology were all running through the Nexus. And a lot of it appears to have been controlled by a network of former British and apartheid era special operators now working in various private military companies. Only a few hints of this have come out beyond Bassan, but they are highly compelling. I should add, though, uh, rather quickly that uh, his trial was the most expensive at this point in South Africa's history, and he was ultimately acquitted. <laughs> yeah, I wonder why. Anyway, Ty Minar, Minar a former STF general linked to the CCB established his own PMC in 1989. It was called Military Technical Assistance and may have been linked to executive outcomes. They were both established in 1989. <clears throat> During the early noughts, Minar twice served as a middleman in deals involving former Project Co scientists and former nationals looking for CBW assistance. This network is still active in some form or another. Even Barlow recently reactivated executive outcomes after returning to the PMC racket sometime in the middle of the prior decade. Around 2012, one of EO's former companies again generated controversy. Saracen International was originally founded to provide additional security in nations after EO departed. EO's holding company originally owned half of Saracen. It was managed by an EO director and former CCB member known as Lafras Lutang. At least, I think. <laughs> Saracen and its successor, Sterling Corporate Services, raised considerable military force in Somalia to battle piracy and restore order to the nation around 2010-2011. Blackwater founder Eric Prince helped them secure many of these contracts. The company would later be accused of corruption and gross human rights violations there. The relationship between Prince and Lutang appears to have been tight. When it came out that Lutang had swindled over $30 million from the UAE, who had been funding the Somalian venture, Prince chalked it up to the South Africans saving the fund for, quote, a rainy day. 
It's interesting to note that another EO veteran close to Liu Tang was Nick Dutut. Dutut later took over military technical assistance during the early nods. The listener will recall another founder, Ty Minar, was twice implicated in smuggling CBWs. Uh, I also point out that uh, Dutut was involved uh, in the whole coup d'etat attempt involving Mark Thatcher and Simon Mann as well. Again, note how incestuous all this is. And against all odds, even Barlow's history B.O., he goes to great lengths to dispel alleged associations with people like Simon Mann or David Sterling, but he's curiously silent about Menar, military technical assistance, or Saracen. He does mention Saracen a few times, but only really in passing. It seems to be a common tactic when uh, he doesn't want to offer up any serious explanations for this stuff. Uh, Prince and his South African cronies were kicked out of Somalia around 2012, not long after Prince uh, began sniffing around Ukraine, a nation that bears remarkable amount of similarities with modern-day South Africa. So did the old special operations mafia from uh, the southern part of the continent find new life in the Ukraine? It would be about part of the course for this group. All right, I've probably said enough at this point, but before turning things over to George to close out, I wanted to raise a few closing points. It's my contention that the West is presently heading towards the collapse of the West Ophelian peace. What this means is a decline in the primacy of nation states as ruling bodies. As national governments have a monopoly on force via the police and military is something we tend to take for granted, but it's a comparatively recently recent development. Historically, these things were often under the control of private bodies and individuals. This was especially true of Europe in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. During this era, militaries were dominated by elite forces such as knights, and they were uh, expensive to maintain, to put it mildly. The modern era gave rise to citizen armies that required less specialized training and cheaper equipment. But with the Cold War, the pendulum began to shift back to elite forces, as I noted earlier. And this paved the way for the return of the fabled mercenary and the East India companies of old. So from my perspective, modern day Africa has been an experiment by various powers to see how this will play out. Barlow's Against All Odds is especially informative in this regard. When the colonial powers left Africa, they did everything in their power to ensure that the national governments that followed would be weak and corrupt. This is especially true of the militaries of various African nations, which Barlow contends have been kept in perpetual states of incompetence by the West. African nations, especially those rich in natural resources, that have achieved some semblance of independence from the West have been relentlessly targeted until brought to heel. Case in point, North Africa. The contemporary history of both Egypt and Libya is especially illustrative in this regard. Nigeria and West Africa would be another instance of this. All three nations enjoyed some degree of autonomy from the West for a time, largely at the cost of some type of authoritarian form of government. But at least there was some stability of even prosperity in those regimes, especially Libya, at least for a time even apartheid South Africa, which had a far stronger military in Africa for much of the cold than anywhere else in Africa for much of the Cold War, was abandoned by the West after the fall of the Soviet Union. The process may even have begun beforehand. As I've noted throughout 
the PWO uh, both uh, was a staunch South African nationalist who wanted to ensure the survival of the regime as a major power. In 1989, shortly after Cuba agreed to withdraw troops from Angola, both have suffered a sudden stroke. <clears throat> this paved the way for FW to declare a kind of uh, South African Yelston to assume the presidency. De Klerk then began rapidly dismounting the formidable SADF, including its nuclear and CBW programs. He also sacked many of the nation's elite forces, leaving the new military rechristened the South African National Defense Force, a shell of its former self. And this also freed up many of the, uh, the best special operators in the world to go to work for various PMCs. So by the 1990s, most African governments were barely capable of governing. This paves the way for the Western powers to re-enter and assume control of the natural resources. <clears throat> Two different approaches are taken. One is the UN, and this is frankly a disaster. For one, UN military forces are themselves often incompetent. Further deadlock among the member nations makes it all but impossible for them to do anything meaningful when deployed. In many ways, the Blue Hats have really just led to further chaos in post-Cold War Africa, ensuring national militaries remain inept on the one hand, and often flooding these nations with corrupt foreign militaries on the other. Elsewhere, the Western powers, but especially the British, achieved remarkable results via, via various private military companies. So what it amounts to is by the 21st century, PMCs have uh, become the de facto means uh, by which these resources are secured in the continent. In other words, we're witnessing a revival of the East India companies. And like the East India companies of old, the various PMCs and the warlords behind them are often at odds with one another. For years, even Barlow has had an ongoing rivalry with Shine Clearly and what became uh, Aranus International. More recently, Barlow and Eric Prince have been rivals over contracts, most notably in Nigeria. This despite Prince working with a close figure linked to Barlow and executive outcomes years ago. That would be Lafres uh, Lutang. After Prince and uh, Lutang were driven out of Somalia around 2013, they were replaced by another offshoot of the notorious British PM, uh, of the um, notorious Yemen clique I was talking about earlier, and that would be an offshoot of Kini Mini Services. Same SAS network that goes back to David Sterling in Yemen in the 1960s, kids. So you get one group out and then another bit of the uh, network comes in though they seem to be a bit at odds with each other, at least over the contract. Again, a lot of it is really just about the money, ultimately. This is why the word mafia is so apt in describing the status of many of these special operators and the PMCs that they manage. In many cases, they're little more than glorified crime lords at war with one another over territory. It's just, in this case, the territory is possibly the most resource-rich continent on Earth. And besides drugs and guns, they may also be trafficking bioweapons, nuclear secrets, and something else we've yet to talk about. And on that note, let's return to good old General Magnus Milan for a moment. We've heard a lot about this character. 
He was effectively PW both as right hand throughout his administration has been directly implicated in many of the most notorious aspects of that regime. But there's one charge involving Milan we haven't addressed yet. Pedophilia. Yeah, you knew it had to come up sooner or later, right? I mean, you know, we're basically bringing rhinos to extinction to traffic their freaking horns to fund this kind of shit. So why not kids, you know? Anyway, there are long-standing allegations Milan was running a pedophile ring as part of CB throughout the 1980s. So, George, what can you tell us about this uh, this little uh, episode in this uh, tapestry? Yeah, I mean, it certainly does appear that uh, in a sort of parallel thing to the Franklin scandal that was happening here, that there was a pedophile network involving the uh, highest level individuals in Botha's administration, including multiple, multiple of cabinet ministers, one of them being a uh, Magnus Milan himself, one of them being the allegedly the finance minister, and one of them being the uh, minister of environmental affairs, John Wiley. Uh, those were, unfortunately, you know, this investigation is one that really got killed almost immediately before it had much of a chance to get off the ground. So it is very, very difficult to know exactly how big this network was, who else was involved, and, you know, whether it was, you know, who exactly was running it. Certainly uh, Milan appears to be the prime uh, candidate uh, given his own connections, and, you know, running this uh, intelligent, this sort of parallel intelligence establishment. But uh, in terms of uh, solid facts, you know, it really begins with the, uh, it's all told, I would say most effectively in a book published in 2017 called The Lost Boys of Bird Island. Uh, published by, uh, basically it was written by two people. It was a former cop uh, in South Africa named Mark Minnie, M-I-N-N-I-E, and also a former journalist uh, in there for, I believe, the Cape Times named Chris Stein, that's S-T-E-Y-N. Uh, two individuals who, from their respective uh, points of view, Mark Minnie the cop and Chris Stein the journalist, investigating this scandal as it unfolded, sort of two separate aspects of it, and eventually realized that when they came back together in 2016, that they had actually stumbled onto the same thing from slightly different angles. Uh, basically, it all sort of began uh, in the in the mid 1980s. I believe it was like 1987 uh, when it happened. A an individual came to the uh, police station. Basically, this individual had uh, really been complaining. Uh, to complaining you know, to his mother, the mother uh, sort of lodged the complaint informally with the with Mark Minnie's supervisor through the church that they both belong to, and uh, so as far as they told uh, Mark to investigate this and you know talk to the talk to the woman and her son, and so Mark uh, Mark Minnie when he's investigating this got the woman to you know got the mother to leave, talk to the son, and the son basically talked about how both he and his younger brother had been in had been the victims of a bunch of sadistic pedophiles. The only one who they really were able to identify at, at the time was uh, uh, a figure by the name of Uncle Dave. And uh, also this, this older boy, this boy uh, who along with his younger brother had, had been involved in the stuff, gave an address, for, uh, gave information on Uncle Dave, you know, and ad stuff to track him down. Uh, Mark Minnie, you know, found the, found the boy uh, found the younger brother who had been in the hospital after having been very violently raped uh, 
and you know managed to get some information from the boy ultimately got him to make a uh, make a statement about what had happened and so he had two witnesses pointing to this uncle dave guy had an idea of how to track him down and uh so ultimately you know he did so uh, went went to the house where this man whose name was Dave Allen, a sort of famous you know figure who was involved in uh, involved you know involved in scuba diving, involved in sort of in conservation, and had and there was this island known as Bird Island that he would often visit, uh, you know take trips to, and the allegation was that he had uh, he and his uh, co-conspirators had taken boys, and as it happened. Uh, you know, these were all these were white men who were abusing them, and these were all you know boys of color. So there was a rather disturbing racial component in the abuse. That you know, the kids who were at the absolute bottom of the totem pole in this apartheid state were being abused by the white minority that was at the very top of the uh, totem pole. And uh, so you know, Mark Minnie ended up uh, you know they, he and his partner searched the house looking for any incriminating evidence. They ultimately found a secret stash of pornography, which was enough to, you know, be, you know, solid for initial arrest. They arrested him on both the porn charges and the charges of molesting this boy. And so when they were driving him away, uh, you know, to be locked up, uh, Dave Allen, aka Uncle Dave, started, you know, basically started spilling the beans in a sort of oblique way, basically with like, I'm not going to go down with this for this on my own. I'm not the only person. I'm not about to take the fall for this. And he started rattling off a couple names and he rattled off the names of three cabinet ministers in Botha's administration, that being reportedly uh, Magnus, uh, Magnus Milan, the uh, Minister of Defense, John Wiley, Minister of Environmental Affairs. And this person was never identified in the book for legal reasons because they were still alive. But then later in an attempt to discredit the book, uh, he actually came out openly identified himself as the third minister so with that in mind i feel comfortable naming him as a uh, baron duplessis uh, that's p-l-e-s-s-i-s who was minister of finance under botha so these three relatively you know, prominent and powerful uh, cabinet ministers were all were all implicated by uh, implicated by dave allen so anyway you know there was going to be a hearing on Dave Allen's charges the next day, but Dave Allen did not show up. And then the news came in that next day that he had been shot to death. And of course, uh, his shooting was ruled suicide, even though there were multiple aspects of that that didn't seem to add up, like the fact that you know he used a gun supposedly that uh, would have had enough of a recoil to blast it out of his hand if he really had killed himself with it, but the gun was placed in his hand. And then a weird statement, you know, later there was a weird statement mentioned in the book that Mark Minion covered while investigating this, that supposedly this, you know, witness to the scene, he came to the scene of the quote-unquote suicide, saw the gun had been thrown away from him, and then for some reason decided to place the gun back into Alan's hand, thus uh, tampering with this crime scene. Uh, but anyway, you know, that, so this Lee, this person who could have spilled the beans, was eliminated almost immediately. and then. A couple weeks, a couple weeks after that, uh, another uh, one of the figures who was implicated, John Wiley, also ends up uh, supposedly killing himself. Even though there is some, uh, certainly some mysterious aspects of that as well. Like uh, there was a, apparently, you know, a the room was locked inside. The key to the room was missing. No one could find it inside the room. 
So, you know, the, it appears very clearly that someone went into the room, killed him, and then locked it from the outside and uh, you know, ran off with the, uh, you know, ran off with the key, but, you know, because it was never located after that, which certainly points away from it being a suicide. But uh, once again, there was uh, no real follow-up. Uh, Chris Stain, the journalist, got involved in investigating the suicide of, quote-unquote, suicide of John Wiley, what pulled her into the case. And so, she began following up on it, hearing about John Wiley's secret life, finding sources who would say you know, that he was gay, and not just that he was gay, but that he specifically had a taste for underage boys, that he would make trips to uh, to Bird Island uh, to satisfy these desires. There it turned out to be evidence that uh, John Wiley was actually responsible for getting Dave Allen a salvaging permit uh, for you know, salvaging stuff from shipwrecks, which Allen was famous for. So there's a definitive connection established between Allen and Wiley. And she herself, uh, Christine, was hearing rumors that other people, such as Magnus Mallon, were involved in this stuff too. So you know, his word on the street was very strong uh, in pointing to the same story about a pedophile ring involving these people. But, you know, any attempts to publish this information were shut down. The uh, investigations that uh, Mark Minnie did were constantly sabotaged from above. You know, initially the special prosecutor, uh, you know, said, you know, shut down your investigation. Mark Minnie sort of continued doing an unofficial investigation on the side, found another source in the underworld of drugs and sex in the area who was able to actually said that he had a history of uh, being being raped by these men. Could tell a story about uh, you know about how all these men were abusers, and even told a very disturbing story about another former victim who, while being abused on Bird Island by Magnus Mallon, was actually shot by, you know, with a gun through his anus and underwent, as you can imagine, incredibly severe, horrible internal damage and actually had to be flown reportedly to a uh, to a hospital on these uh, you know by these CC, essentially uh, by these SADF uh, military you know, military flight you know taken to the hospital told to uh, and told to operate on this boy in complete secret there was a woman at the hospital who learned about this and was told to keep it silent she ultimately ended up telling Mark Minnie about this and yeah, when they identified the doctor, by the way, uh, I believe, if I recall correctly, they found that the doctor who was implicated in doing the surgery had a history of uh, potentially trafficking drugs at the hospital. So there's also a connection to some of the drug rings that you mentioned earlier. But anyway, you know, once again, even this unofficial investigation one day, you know, when they got, when the uh, higher ups, so to speak, got wind of what was happening, they just sent in uh, some goon squad to steal the files from Mark Minnie's desk, take them away, and you know, suppress all the evidence once again. You know, all the tape statements and stuff that he had done in his unofficial investigation was just taken away from him. So unfortunately, that's sort of where it landed. That uh, there was a sign of a, a very clear sign of a pedophile ring in South Africa involving some of the most powerful people, and they're particularly Magnus Mallon, who was probably, I mean, clearly the most powerful cabinet minister and as we've discussed, arguably, you know, maybe the real wielder of power in South Africa at the time, given the networks that he really commanded, and uh, him being a sadistic pedophile who was accused of involvement in this stuff, and then, of course, it's all shut down, as uh, happened in the Franklin case, the Detroit case, uh, really too many others to name, with uh, 
suspicious quote-unquote suicide silencing key people as we see in the Epstein case and Franklin and again so many others like this. So that unfortunately is uh, kind of where it left off that there was a clear you know, appeared to be a very uh, solid set of leads pointing to this pedophile ring, but it never really got off the ground. And given the connection of the people involved, it does uh, not too hard to understand why that might be. Now, some things to note about uh, Magnus, Magnus Malin that are interesting and potentially illuminative of where this might actually lead to. He actually did receive some of his training uh, in the U.S. You know, shortly, a couple years before he joined uh, Broderbond, I believe he joined in like 1967, but before that, in the early 1960s, Magnus Mallon was in the U.S. to get a couple of uh, training courses at the U.S. Uh, Army General Staff College in Fort Leavenworth. I think he got the regular command course and also the general staff officers course. So he was another one of those interesting figures who is, you know, U.S. trained and then becomes in an outright brutal fascist in the so-called, you know, third world which is a pattern that we see repeat uh, in Latin America as well. A lot of these uh, death squad leaders like you know, uh, you know, Robert Diabasin, the AKA Blowtorch Bob, the brutal death squad leader in El Salvador received military training at the School of the Americas in Fort Benning, Georgia. You know, it seems there's a pattern of these death squad individuals getting trained by US military and intelligence forces early in their careers, and then, of course, being held as plausibly deniable assets at arm's length, pretty much carrying out the will of these, uh, what these Western powers seem to want, while officially having nothing to do with them. That's, uh, I mean, people like, and that's sort of been the theme of this whole thing, people like Hatfield, people like uh, Frank Camper, Abramoff, and now, you know, even potentially Malin himself, who heads up the SADF and has received training from the United States military establishment. And uh, with that sort of thing, combined with the fact that, uh, I mean, obviously the, the death squads that uh, Magnus Milan operated are very uh, much a parallel to Gladiator, you know, the existence of a stay behind network of brutal, uh, you know, brutal you know, forces that are, you know, quote unquote anti-communists, which is the reason to justify their existence, but of course seem to be very much fascist in nature and devoted to the oppression of their fellow citizens and particularly any citizens who want to challenge the, you know, want to uh, make any sort of positive social change within the system. That appears to be what the forces are really deployed for. So Magnus Malin appears to be a manifestation of the same sort of Gladio network we see in Europe. And it is a very uh, distinctive pattern of the Gladio networks that pedophilia and sexual blackmail is a big part of it. You know, Mark Dutro and his networks, people behind him, were very much connected to Gladio. And you have indications that members of uh, these Belgian para fascist paramilitary groups and the Stay Behind networks were supplying networks with children, evidence that uh, you know his backers like Michael Nihal were connected in that way. So it would not be a surprise to see the same pattern manifest in South Africa and, and that their head of, Glad of their Gladio equivalent basically was uh, operating this pedophile ring. And uh, unfortunately, you know, it's, uh, it, it's like, you know, this is like Franklin, if Franklin never really got a chance to get off the ground in the first place. It's very rare, unfortunately, to find pedophile ring cases with these such prominent individuals that have any real evidence, uh, you know, a lot of real evidence where you can really unwind it. And hopefully the research of people like Chris Stain are able to uncover more. Uh, Mark Minnie curiously 
is said to have committed suicide very shortly after this book was published, which is very bizarre. And then uh, soon after that, there was a big, uh, big backlash about this book, especially from a couple of lawyers and there's the private investigator who represented uh, represented Baron, uh, Baron Duplessis and also the families of Wiley and Magnus Mallon saying this book was all lies, trying to discredit it. And they even have a website up and have for a while you know, that claims to discredit this book. They managed to get the publisher to disavow the book, apologize for the accusations they made and say, you know, basically get the publisher to say this book was not true, even though there it doesn't appear to be a very solid basis for that. And uh, I can say that when you look at who these lawyers were, who are supposed to be, you know, the finders of truth, uh, exposing the truth about this book. One of them, uh, Johann Victor, and he represents the families of Malin Wiley, Baron Duplessis, and, uh, you know, I have to say, I mean, given the choice of who, I mean, choosing to represent people with such abominable records as Malin, uh, I feel like you have to say something about uh, your own moral compass, and even worse is uh, his partner in this endeavor, Dr. Koos van der Merway, who in his bio on this website, bizarrely enough, makes proud mention of the fact that he was a, an MP, I mean, who basically said he was an MP since like 1978 or some, or thereabouts, and originally was in the National Party, but then joined the Conservative Party and became an MP for them as soon as it was formed in 1982. And for context, the Conservative Party is basically a a party that thought the, that believed the National Party did not go far enough in assuring apartheid, that even the moderate liberalization that the National Party tried to make, seemingly to try and save face for what was happening in South Africa, believed that even that was too much. So they were a extreme pro-apartheid opposition force, at very much overtly racist, pro-white minority rule. And uh, this was the party that one of uh, Magnus Mallon, you know, that one of Magnus Mallon's defenders and one of the so-called debunkers of the pedophile ring is very proud to state that he belonged to, which I feel like, again, has to say something about the character of those who would purport to disprove this story. Yeah, and uh, <clears throat> it's also uh, interesting to add uh, a major body linked uh, to Gladio and uh, some of those pedophile networks in Europe was uh, good old Le Cercau, um, the Cercaus we had uh, actually talked about in the third uh, international fascism series was also uh, linked to uh, Colonia Dignidad in uh, Chile. Of course, Colonia Dignidad uh, was a major hub in Operation Condor, which was very similar to Gladio and what Magnus Bilan appears to have been uh, overseeing here in South Africa. And uh, the head of uh, Colonia Dignidad, uh, Herr Paul Schaefer, uh, was also deeply involved in pedophilia as well. Uh, so there is that overlap. And uh, in South Africa, wouldn't you know it, um, Le Cercau had very close relationships there too. In fact, they were um, UK's uh, principal liaisons uh, with South Africa. So yeah, and uh, that particular chairman I had uh, talked about helping set up the private security racket, he was definitely very big on South Africa and involved in a lot of this. So yeah, that's uh, all interesting to keep in mind. Uh, yeah, I wanted to add as well uh, that uh, the UK branch of Western Gulf was also very close to this conservative party that one of the so-called debunkers of uh, Lost Boys of Bird Island uh, was part of. So there's another connection to that sort of milieu. 
Yeah, that's interesting too, because that also brings up Roy Cohn. Um, but yeah, uh, definitely if you want more on the Le Circle ties uh, to Colonia Dignidad, check out uh, my book, Strange Tales of the Parapolitical, and more on that Le Circle chairman and some of the backdrop for all this. Look at the uh, the first book in the uh, special relationship, the yeah, first book in the Epstein series. And that, uh, that brings me to another point that I wanted to get here right quick, which would be Epstein himself and his ring. It's interesting, uh, one of the sort of uh, curious parallels with Milan and with uh, the sort of black network we've been describing in the Epstein network was also the presence of this, uh, you know, really kind of cutting edge scientific research as well. I mean, of course, the apartheid regime really does seem like it was sponsoring a lot of the CBW operations through drug trafficking and the like uh, with Epstein and Monroe and sex trafficking and probably <clears throat> arms trafficking were part of both rings. But um, that is a, a fascinating component that in both cases, it seems like this kind of stuff, uh, underage women, guns, uh, drugs, I mean, they were being used to fund uh some of this uh, kind of scientific research that just, you know, really couldn't be uh, formally sponsored in a university or something to that effect. I mean, of course, Epstein, there's a lot of indications of his uh, involved eugenics. I mean, this wasn't the kind of thing that could uh, be done through reputable sources, let us just say. So there you go. Yeah. And of course, I mean, the, the White Eagle Underground being in, that we've talked about in previous shows being another manifestation of how pedophile rings and biowarfare research are very are nearly inextricably linked with each other yeah well there was also the whole incident with larry ford as well i mean i didn't want to yeah. get too involved in that in fact i think we already covered that in another one of the podcasts but um yeah this... yeah there's definitely a speculation that hatfield was uh somehow close to that not something i've ever seen confirmed but seems to be relatively plausible given what the two of them were involved in yeah so i mean there's evidence of like a broader network here that uh you know i mean a far right fascist network i mean that was on the one hand uh, linked to a lot of this shady cbw stuff and then also had a lot of ties to these various private military and private intelligence companies of course george did such a great job of illustrating hatfield's links to saic as well so i mean that's another major factor in a lot of this um, which has now become Lydios, I believe, at least in large part. And then, of course, SAC still continues on. But yeah, I mean, these guys are another major player. Uh, and then one final point uh, before we move on here, the next question for George that I just uh, wanted to make is that um, <clears throat> modern day South Africa is an absolute nexus um, for child sex trafficking. And I frankly would not again i don't have any hard evidence of this but it would given what we have been outlining throughout the course of this episode it would it would hardly surprise me if it had its genesis and uh some of the stuff that was going on in the 1980s again i mean there's a little question that i mean members of this uh the special operations mafia like dr wudu Boson uh were involved in drug trafficking to sponsor this insanity hardly yeah sadly i feel like you know these networks are very hard to root out even when it seems like the government the official government has changed 
they have their way of burrowing deep into the underbelly of the system and uh never yeah that's even. like really the remarkable thing is i mean you would especially after all these years and a lot of these figures are dead i mean you would think that i mean they would have a vested interest you know i mean the uh, anc in the modern day south africa and finally uh you know releasing some of this information which makes you wonder what in god's name are they really holding over these governments <laughs> oh my lord all right so yeah no but definitely child sex trafficking this is horrendous in south africa this is just another you know aspect of what this network has accomplished I mean, it, you know, I just can't emphasize how horrendous this all is enough, guys. I really can't. It's, it's a hard chronically, just to put it mildly. So anyway, um, George, uh, you also think the murder of a Don Koontz in 1979, uh, who was allegedly tied into the Yonkers cult linked to the Son of Sam murders, because yes, we were going to bring up a bloody cult too, guys, you knew it was coming, may also have been tied into the whole netherworld we've been outlining. So what of this, sir? Yeah, that's right. Uh, one of the, around the end of uh, The Ultimate Evil, there, you know, Maury Terry is recounting all of these other, you know, unsolved, at the time, unsolved crimes and other mysterious figures that seem to have at least been tangentially linked to the Son of Sam operation in some way. Uh, he quotes David Berkowitz saying that this woman, Dawn Coons, who was a former Yonkers resident before moving to Bakersfield, California, and then being murdered uh, in 1979, that he remembered Don Coons hanging around Untermeyer Park, which was one of the sites where these cult rituals were said to be taking place. So he appears to be placing this woman, uh, Dawn, as some sort of participant in the Son of Sam cult. Uh, no more specific details than that, but it certainly is interesting that she that he would identify someone who turns up uh, murdered there. Now, when uh, looking into the nature of uh, Don Coons's uh, murder. There was a curious article that came out in, I believe, 2009 in Bakersfield Magazine. Uh, and I should say to listeners who want to look into this more, you, if you search for it on Google, you'll probably find it. I'm also, after the show, going to try to make sure it ends up on CavDef uh, so people can find it too. But basically, this article in Bakersfield Magazine about Don Coons' murder reveals some very uh, provocative facts about her life and her death. That when she was in Yonkers, the uh, pretty much uh, starting from her teenage years, back when she was in fact underage, around like 15 or so, that she had a pretty uh, wild party lifestyle over there in Yonkers. That she would constantly be going out to these ritzy parties in the Hamptons. Uh, and at these parties, she wasn't just with anyone. She was by her own account to her brother uh, meeting royalty. She kept talking about you know, meeting prince, whoever, you know, or king, whatever, like she was, apparently meeting some very prominent people, which, you know, by one, you know, some people might think this just seemed outlandish. She was making this up and obviously there's no solid evidence of what was happening, but it should be noted that uh, according to Mario Terry's investigation in The Ultimate Evil, that the Son of Sam cult was multifaceted with running many different operations, including, uh, you know, I mean, murder for hire, unsurprising drug trafficking is pretty classic. But one of the other things that the a cult was running with a so-called call girl ring, you know, that it would be essentially forcing these uh, women and there's a good reason to believe also forcing underage girls into prostitution. 
uh, certainly that this uh, cult was involved in child prostitution and uh, child pornography as well. So there's no doubt that it was using uh, both adults and uh, underage individuals for, you know, forcing them to have sex with certain clients. And then the accounts of this cult had many uh, prominent people who were either associated with it directly or using its services. You know, there are, of course, accounts of this cult going to parties at houses like that of Roy Cohn, accounts of the cult having, you know, being close to individuals like Roy Radin. So, you know, there are some very prominent people who appear to be lined up with this cult who are either, you know, if not involved in the rich or alleged ritualistic stuff directly, but certainly partaking in the uh, prostitution and drugs that it was providing. And so that provides some additional context to the environment that Don Kuhn seems to have been part of. You know, that it's certainly, uh, there certainly is something troubling about a girl who is only you know, 15 to 18 years old partying with all of these wealthy men constantly in a very, you know, very rich area. It doesn't seem to be on the up and up, uh, to say the least. And anyway, she later ended up... Uh, moving to Bakersfield uh, because she had a boyfriend at the time in Yonkers who uh, moved there. She decided to go with him. Not long after ending up there, they broke up. And uh, so, you know, she was basically, she you know, started making her own life for herself. She became a waitress, but then uh, she, not too long after her move, she ended up uh, being found brutally murdered in her bathtub, you know, strangled, uh, completely nude, strangled to death it was a very uh, very grim scene and so the police began looking into that they of course found out about the sort of party lifestyle that she had and uh, one of the most uh, bizarre things about it is that she apparently uh, knew this uh, quote-unquote according to the cop who investigated her murder a quote-unquote bigwig from South Africa unquote who she knew back from New York uh, and so obviously, given the context of what it seems she was involved with in New York, being forced into in New York, that uh, leaves some troubling questions about the South African bigwig, whoever they were. And the weirdest part about it is that the South African bigwig, according to information the cop received, actually had been in Bakersfield visiting at the time that she was murdered. So, you know, the odds that, you know, she knows this guy in New York, in Yon near Yonkers, she moves to Bakersfield and this guy who she knew there, uh, some sort of prominent South African figure just ended up in the same place where she has moved to at the time she's murdered is certainly a troubling uh, coincidence, if it really is a coincidence. The other uh, sort of strange thing about the case is that as the investigator, uh, his name was Louis Bayes, he ended up dying like two years after this article was published. According to the investigator, uh, Bayes, he actually, uh, for some reason, this very weird, unexplained reason, the uh, federal authorities got very interested in this murder. And there's no indication of why that would have happened under any ordinary circumstances. There was no reason to think that this was an inter had any sort of interstate involvement, you know, at least by the fact that were apparent, you know, just from the scene of the crime. You know, she was murdered in her bathtub. Why? There's no reason to assume that the U.S. Attorney's Office in Los Angeles would have anything to do with this. Moreover, uh, Los the U.S. Attorney's Office for Los Angeles did not even include Bakersfield. It was out of their jurisdiction. So again, there's no reason, no good reason why they would want, why they would be involved in this uh, unless there was something deeper going on. And even the, uh, the investigator himself 
said that he believed Don Coons was some sort of federal informant. That was why they were interested in getting into this. Of course, I have a suspicion, or, or like, you know, not necessarily informant, but at least involved in the witness protection program, you know, something like that. I tend to believe it was something even darker than that, that they knew about the uh, high-level political implications that this murder might have. But either way, there certainly is something very unusual about a federal prosecutor asserting this sort of a weight outside of their jurisdiction to uh, basically keep tabs on this murder, try to get information about how the investigation is going. So that's another sign. This murder is not just some simple, you know, random uh, act of violence, that there's something more to it. And ultimately, the way that this ends is a very, uh, I would say, troubling, <laughs> troubling end of the whole thing that they supposedly identify a guy by DNA uh, whose name is Prentice Foreman, a truck driver who lived in the apartment complex with where Dawn did and supposedly had been harassing her. Although, as I'll get to, the evidence about this is far from conclusive that he actually was. Uh, you know, supposedly, you know, they identify this guy, him by uh, DNA from I believe, a, semen, a semen sample that was left in Dawn. I think, she, yeah, she was raped at the time of her murder. Absolutely sickening. Uh, so he supposedly is a match to this, and so they bring him in and uh, you know arrest him and then put him on trial. There are a couple uh, things about this case that do not that have start to point to uh, something a bigger picture from the very beginning. First of all, everything I just mentioned about the South African connection and the role of the district and the role of the U.S. Attorney's Office. Also, the fact that there is some uh, a fingerprint found in Dawn's apartment which belongs to a sex offender uh, who, is not, who is not this uh, truck driver apprentice foreman. It's somebody else. And this individual is never identified publicly, but clearly, you know, what, what is a sex offender uh, doing in Don Coons' apartment? It starts to appear even just from that, that there's something, there are other people who at the very least deserve to be treated as plausible suspects in what's happened, but this lead is completely dropped and not looked into. Then, uh, so beyond that, you have the, you know, ultimately, Prentice Foreman is brought to trial, and uh, there's some testimony that's uh, used to uh, convict him, you know, to back up this DNA match and point to him being the perpetrator, which appears to be very, very questionable, to say the least. You know, they tr the state tried to prove that Prentice Foreman was, had a history of harassing and Dawn and making her uncomfortable. And the two main witnesses they used to do this were, first of all, Dawn's best friend. Uh, now, supposedly, you know, Dawn's best friend would testify that, you know, that, yeah, she told, you know, that this guy was harassing him, and I knew it was Prentice, I knew it was this guy from the very beginning. It turns out that in her initial police statements, uh, she did not say anything, and did not really give much specific information about this at all, didn't even mention the race, didn't mention the race of this man, uh, Prentice Foreman, who was black, and when she was confronted with this, she tried to say, you know, oh, the police must have misquoted me, and then eventually admitted, yeah, I never mentioned this. And uh, so basically she gave no real, no useful physical description at all, it would appear, even though supposedly decades later, she's able to see this guy's picture on TV and immediately recognize him as being the man she knew about. So why she wouldn't have given a, seemingly would not have given a legit, you know, useful description of police, not even mentioning the race of this guy, uh, at all back when it really mattered is somewhat baffling. And I would argue points to the possibility that this testimony was 
uh, shall we say, massaged and uh, enhanced by prosecutors in advance of the trial. And then the other major uh, witness against Foreman was, uh, incredibly enough, the ex-boyfriend of Don Coons. And the ex-boyfriend appears to tell a story that is, you know, honestly, pardon my language, just full of shit in every way. He tries to claim, you know, he, he, I mean, he makes some curious claims that, you know, even after they had broken up and, uh, you know, even after they had broken up that he was still pretty close to Dawn, that he, uh, that she would still call him after the breakup and tell him about how Prince Foreman had been harassing her. Accord, I, according to the article in Bakersfield Magazine, apparently he even claimed to have had sex with her on the night that, you know, basically like either the day of or the day before her murder, which is also pretty hard to believe given that they had broken up like a month prior. And honestly, to me, seems like it was an attempt to preemptively try to plant, you know, an explanation if his DNA was found uh, in her at the murder scene. Uh, you know, that's uh, certainly my interpretation of an otherwise bizarre and, uh, and really nonsensical statement on the ex-boyfriend's part. Also, uh, he was confronted with other inconsistent statements at the trial, such as the fact that, you know, he told a, uh, you know, he, he told the police back then that he had a scuffle with her, you know, that in his, he claimed to have last seen Dawn two weeks before her murder. They had some scuffle over a pillow and, uh, then you know, when he was confronted with that in the police report, he denied it and said, you know, oh, this wasn't true. The police misquoted me, of course. He also, you know, there's a report that he had a key to Dawn's place for multiple days uh, out in Bakersfield, but he tried to say, oh, no, I only had it briefly just to help her move some stuff, and that was it. So he appears to have made statements that uh, at least suggest, you know, suggest that he possibly had, you know, motive and opportunity, and he's just trying to disavow everything on the witness stand and try to say, oh no, the police misquoted me, they misquoted me on this, they misquoted me on that, and uh, the, the worst part of it, though, is that, uh, I mean, a, well, a couple things. He also told a story that appears to be totally ludicrous about how sometime after the murder, for some reason, Prentice Foreman just happens to come to his apartment complex, which is nowhere near, I mean, it's not really, like, no indication of why Prentice Foreman would have known where to find this guy, no indication of why he would have wanted to track down Dawn's ex-boyfriend who she who they had already been broken up. Uh, but supposedly Prentice Foreman has come comes over to where uh, this ex-boyfriend is and you know just parked out there and then as he's going to his car, Prentice Foreman just randomly decides to rush his car at this ex-boyfriend and try to kill him with the car. So then the ex-boyfriend, instead of you know calling the police or reporting it, just decides, okay, I'm gonna chase this crazy guy who just tried to kill me. And gets in his car, chases Prentice Foreman several blocks, supposedly, all the way back to the apartment complex where uh, where Dawn lived before you know, before her murder. And afterwards, reports and only afterwards will report this to police and tell the Lewis Bayouth, "Oh, this guy who was harassing Dawn just tried to kill me." Of course, you know, not only is this there's no real logical explanation of how or why this would have transpired. There's also no way to check the story because uh, Lewis Bayouth was dead at the time of the trial anyway but they basically tell the story riddled you know with tons of you know weird occurrences that seem very unlikely and is constantly trying to revise things and paint himself in the best light but the and the really troubling part of it too is that the defense was unable to do a lot to impeach uh, his credibility at trial even though there was plenty of evidence to do so that there were multiple statements by people who knew dawn that he was untrustworthy manipulative that he was even physically abusive to her that he was absolutely you know had enough to 
make him be considered a prime suspect in this murder. And none of this was allowed to be introduced at trial. Oddly enough, you know, when uh, Prince Foreman appealed and the appeal was denied a couple months ago in February of 2022, the appeals court somehow said that, you know, oh, because they, that the prosecution never made a claim about Prince, about the ex-boyfriend's credibility, which is obviously a garbage claim to make if they put him on the witness stand and used him as a witness to convict their guy. You know, if you're putting him up as a witness, you are obviously making the claim that he's credible or else, I mean, the alternative is that you're suborning perjury, which I don't think they would want to claim they're doing. So the idea that they can use a witness and, uh, you know, to testify against their, uh, the person they want to convict, but then not have to have the door open to impeaching his credibility just shows what a sham trial this ultimately was. I can say personally, uh, given that the ex-boyfriend was in Yonkers with her, he moved to Bakersfield, she followed, almost makes me suspect that there's some kind of a deal going on that he might have been you know, a, a pimp almost or something. You know, certainly is a, a strong, you know, history of these, you know, boyfriends really being uh, rather, you know, abusive pimps to their girlfriends and letting other, letting these other men use them sexually. So that, you know, the history, what the, the way that the boyfriend behaved, the fact that she followed him, and of course, his behavior and the statements around the murder certainly make him a prime suspect in my view. And with the alleged involvement of the cult and potentially sexual exploitation of this girl, including by some relatively high-level people, including this mysterious South African, certainly the ex-boyfriend deserves to be viewed as a suspect. Uh, there needs to be a serious look taken at whether the conviction of Prentice Foreman was really valid, and there needs to be an exploration of you know, these high, these prominent people who Dawn was involved with back in New York. But uh, whether that will actually happen, I have some doubt, but it certainly appears to tie back into the same nexus of sexual exploitation uh, and underground networks uh, with all these dirty feelings. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, especially with, um, <clears throat> you know, the ring you're describing, Milan being linked to Western Goals Foundation, it brings Roy Cohn into play. And, um, Larry McDonald, of course, as well. I mean, Cone was, of course, linked directly by Maury Terry for what's worth of the uh, son of Sam Cole, though I guess apparently Berkowitz was the source on that uh, directly. And uh, McDonald, you know, again, I mean, he was, uh, I think, at least three different versions of the Order of St. John, one of which had the uh, White Eagle Underground on the letterhead. So... Yeah, I mean, this is just, you know, again, this whole incestuous milieu. I mean, of course, I've, uh, as I often point out, Fred Cohen, I mean, another suspected member of the Son of Sam cult, uh, was also a member of the National States Rights Party, which has been right. just implicated in waves of far-right terrorism for decades in the U.S. I mean, the bombing of African-American churches, and members like Fraser Glenn Miller that are murderers many times over. It's... it's so yeah, I mean, this, this this whole network is absolutely incestuous. It would hardly be surprising. I mean, if members of the uh, this apartheid South African regime had reached out to it. I mean, of course, as we had already talked about before, I mean, South Africa during this whole era with, was being run by the National Party is basically a one-party state. And within the National Party, it was literally being run by a secret society that wrote bond and mutiny. You know, in this context, the fact that they would potentially be operating with some kind of cult was hardly outside the realm of possibility, quite frankly, given some of the other stuff we've described throughout this. 
And since, I mean, since you mentioned uh, Fred Cowan, I also, I mean, Alex Marty, who shows up as a member of the Bill Menser's hit squad, and he's involved with death squads in South America, of all places. So once again, you see the same kinds of these fascist paramilitary networks showing up in the fringes of the case. And it, uh, it appears that it's one sort of uh, very well tightly connected and incestuous, as you say, global network of people involved in the absolute worst crimes against humanity, you know, pedophilia, I mean, racism and racially motivated killings, you know, mass murders, uh, it, the whole gamut of sick, absolutely depraved activities. Yeah, I mean, it is just, it's truly incredible. It's about, I guess, all that can really be said. All right, George, let's bring it on home here to wrap up. Uh, We've already talked a bit about Stephen Hatfield and his potential role in the 2001 anthrax attacks, but that wasn't the only link apartheid South Africa had to the wave of terror that rocked these United States in the fall of 2001. And there was one particular event I'm thinking of. George, what can you tell us about the South African links to 9-11? Well, first of all, just to... uh add some other things on to Hatfield and how he seems to tie back into some of the 9-11 network. You know, he was, uh, he was part of, uh, you know, as I mentioned, a consultant with SAIC, one of the biggest private, you know, sort of private defense and intelligence contractors in the U.S. and really, uh, you know, a sort of front arguably for the U.S. intelligence services. And uh, while he was involved with SAIC and, you know, consulting on biological terror, one of the people who he worked with during that time uh, with a man named Jerome Hauer, uh, spelled H-A-U-E-R, uh, was also involved in the same sort of thing. You know, he was a bioterror expert himself, uh, was involved with SAIC and various other entities on this. And Jerome Hauer is very interesting for a couple of reasons with regard to 9-11. He set up, you know, he was the very first director of Rudy Giuliani's uh, Office of Emergency Management in New York City, which uh, in, incidentally was based in World Trade Center 7, and then, of course, that was destroyed on 9-11, even though no plane hit it. But uh, moving on from that, you know, there's the fact that he, uh, after he left the OEM, he was at the OEM from 1996 to 2000. Then he became an advisor to the Department of Health and Human Services on uh, issues of, uh, you know, issues of bioterror, which seemed while at the same time serving as a managing director of Kroll, which is another one of these private intelligence firms. Uh, involved in all sorts of uh, all sorts of you know shady covert acts. You know that even the oh, oh even I got to point out uh, one of the directors of Kroll for a time was a British uh, lad known as Alistair Morrison, uh, who uh, had helped set up um, Aranus, the one South African firm I had mentioned, uh, set up a showing clearly that was a rival to Executive Outcomes and uh, Ibn Barlow. Morrison then later uh, rejoined the board of director of Aranus after he was, uh, I think, a major director in Kroll for a while. So, yeah, there you go. It's just, you know, again, these guys, um, they just... <laughs> yeah, they never, never stop intermingling in this... Uh netherworld of covert operations but yeah i mean howard so you the super uh, obviously super influential guy in terms of terror and so-called emergency management and actually is involved in a very mysterious uh bioterror drill in mid 2001 not long you know, not long before the anthrax attacks themselves operation dark winter which simulates a bio 
terror attack on the U.S. And actually, he he uh, played the role of the FEMA director in this exercise, while uh, none other than Frank Wisner Jr., the son of uh, the infamous Frank Wisner of the CIA, who you know boasted of having a mighty Wurlitzer he could plan command. It was Wisner's son, who also happened to be a big wig at the American International Group AIG, uh, which is you know, this big insurance, uh, you know, insurance firm on Wall Street. Uh, so Frank Wisner Jr. played the Secretary of State in the scenario, while uh, while Jerome Howard plays FEMA director. So certainly interesting, and also for the reason I'll get into a bit later about the other South African connections. But yeah, Howard, who is close to Hatfield, uh, is very connected to the to this whole sort of emergency management thing that's going on in New York City and also more broadly within the federal government. And there's obviously the whole specter on 9-11 of mysterious military exercises that were taking place that day, you know, tons of war games. And also at the same time, this bioterror exercise called Tripod 2 is happening in New York City, uh, being overseen by the Office of Emergency Management under Rudy Giuliani. Uh, very likely that the OEM, which is based in World Trade Center 7, is supervising you know, the, all of these exercises that are going on. And should note, World Trade Center 7 also housed a you know, secret CIA center, a secret, uh, you know, a secret service center as well. So there is a lot of uh, spook activity going on in the same building where the OEM is taking place. And uh, as is noted in the, uh, Mike Rupert's book, Crossing the Rubicon, uh, Dick Cheney was placed in charge of all of these, you know, supervising military exercise, you know, super basically supervising emergency readiness exercises uh, not long before 9-11 happened. And then to see all the exercises happening on 9-11 and to see, you know, Jerome Howard's entity OEM being in the thick of it, to see a bioterror drill on 9-11 being part of this is certainly a provocative picture, if nothing else, about the, you know, the prospect that for many people on 9-11 that, uh, May have believed that they were carrying out an exercise that was sort of the pretext to get a lot of the spooks on board with what was tragically a very real attack on on America. Uh, so that's uh, certainly interesting to see Hatfield only an arm's length away from this much broader, uh, much you know larger collection of uh, you know spooks like Jerome Hauer. And interestingly enough, as well, uh, Sander Hicks, one of the 9/11 uh, researchers wrote a book, Slingshot of the Juggernaut, about how he was investigating various leads. And one of them that he talked about was how he actually called up Jerome Howard, interviewed him, recorded it on tape and everything, and tried to get Howard to explicitly deny that Hatfield had anything to do with the anthrax attacks. And for whatever reason, Jerome Howard was rather evasive about this. He, you know, would try to say, you know, I believe Hatfield is very passionate. I don't believe he's a murderer. He wouldn't really come directly out and say he was innocent, which uh, Sander Hicks believed was kind of interesting. And I also believe was kind of interesting that he wouldn't quite deny it, you know, just uh, seemed to sort of dance around the issue. But, you know, in term beyond that, there are some more direct connections that show up uh, with the whole 9-11 milieu and uh, particularly having to do with uh, the infamous flight school in Venice, Florida, where Muhammad Atta and Marwan Oshahi were said to have received their training. You know, Daniel Hopficker, uh, you have the website madcalprod.com, has the book Welcome to Terrorland. He is definitely the best investigator of this whole uh, network out there of uh, you know what was happening at these flight schools in Venice where Muhammad Atta and his uh, compatriots went to train at. And 
mean, among other things, it does not appear that Muhammad Atta actually had to learn how to fly uh, at this flight school because he had already received, received training from the U.S. military the year prior in uh, at Maxwell Air Force Base in Alabama. But in any case, he was at this flight school, and right around the time he arrived there, uh, one of the flights there was one of the flights that uh, was you know happening at this flight school that Walt that this guy Wally Hilliard owned uh, was busted trafficking a bunch of heroin, and it was on a route that would go from you know, basically go from Venezuela to uh, to Orlando, would stop over there, and then it would fly up to Brighton Beach, New York which is a big Russian mafia enclave and would unload their drugs and was making this flight repeatedly, but then it got, you know, ended up getting caught. And, uh, you know, ultimately the, you know, the pilot, one of the pilots was uh, named Diego Levine Texar was caught. Even while Wally Hilliard, the plane was seized in the middle of this and he was very upset about this. It was a sort of shell company called Plane One Leasing that would seemingly is involved in leasing aircraft for uh, covert operations. And we'll see, you know, Wally Hilliard, who owned the flight, owned this flight school, Huffman Aviation, where Otto was training at, and also owned all these other aviation-related companies, including your know, Plane One Leasing, and also a company called Executive uh, Jet Aviation, which was itself uh, supplying some of the planes that were involved in, in these uh, drug flights down there in Florida. And the interesting thing about Executive Jet Aviation is that uh, Executive Jet Aviation was run by a South African native named Alfonso Bo. That's the uh, first name A-L-P-H-O-N-S-O, uh, last name B-O-W-E. Alfonso Bo you know, runs this uh, flight. You know, basically, he and Wally Hilliard sort of co-own this flight company. And there's even documentation that you know, Wally Hilliard, if that's Wally Hilliard's involved, Wally Hilliard's business partner in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and Ron Weyers is also involved in this. And keep in mind, Hilliard is supposed to be a retired insurance executive in Wisconsin, supposedly retired in 1996, moves down to Florida uh, to live a quiet life, but he immediately gets involved in all these aviation-related front companies and shell companies and quickly networks up with this guy, Alfonso Bow. Meanwhile, Alfonso Bow is also involved in a winery in South Africa and a guy named, uh, a guy named Andrew Hilliard, who is a businessman in Green Bay, happens to be a partner of Alfonso Bones Winery. And obviously Hilliard's not a very common name and to be Hilliard of Green Bay as well seems to indicate pretty strongly that uh, this is a relative of Wally Hilliard. So the Hilliard family, which is itself, uh, I mean, Wally Hilliard is almost undoubtedly working for the CIA. Daniel Hopsticker makes a very compelling case for this, that, uh, ult- that Hilliard was probably recruited by a former OSS guy, Myron Dubane, back in the 80s at the very, latest and then he essentially became an operative running these companies aviation companies which were being used for drug trafficking employing people like Muhammad Atta to create a legend for them as hijackers Uh, but ultimately what's really going on is a big CIA drug running enterprise that Hilliard is supervising and that uh, the Russian mafia of course plays a part of but also this South African businessman Alfonso Bo is playing a very little noted role in as well actually you know when one of uh one of Wally Hilliard's sort of uh, pilots, one of the pilots of his planes named Michael Brassington uh, got stopped by U.S. Customs in one of his drug flights. The Customs Service actually you know, identified him, this guy, Michael Brassington, as a member of the, quote, uh, Alfonso Bow smuggling group. So Alfonso Bow was pretty infamous among 
U.S. Customs for <laughs> running running drugs at, through with aviation companies that were directly tied in with the um, directly tied in with the people who were running the flight schools that employed uh, some of the hijackers. But nothing seems to have come out of this. You know, there's no indication that Alfonso Bo ever faced any real charges for drug trafficking. He still, to this day, from what I can tell, seems to be running executive jet aviation. It's, uh, so he's lived a very charmed life with regards to that. But then again, almost everyone has. Wally Hilliard certainly never faced any sort of retro, uh, you know, consequences for what he did. Everyone involved seems to have got off scot-free, but you know, this South African native Alfonso Bo never, almost never even merited a mention among anyone. That's one of the big uh, South African connections you see in the background of the whole 9-11 network. Another one, I mean, another one is uh, plane one leasing but also supplying planes to a uh, to a group of to a group of individuals uh, organized around this money laundering front known as Member Service Corporation. This guy named Leslie Grayling uh, established it. You know, the supposed you know I guess like stock you know the supposed, you know company you could invest in or whatever. He got a bunch of very interested people to join Member Service Corporation. He got uh, got Adnan Khashoggi to sign as a consultant. Donald Trump was somehow involved in this company. He got a uh, Claude Kirk, who I believe was the former Florida governor, if I'm not mistaken, got all these prominent people to sign on to this company, uh, but ultimately turned out to be a big scam. And Leslie Grayling was arrested, was you know arrested on charges of uh, stock fraud. Now, in the middle, after all this was happening, even while he was in prison, uh, Leslie Grayling began plotting a takeover of an of a set of islands in the Bahamas. And he was plotting his takeover with a bunch of people, you know, including uh, his attorney, F. Lee Bailey, and also, uh, and, this, and it was also seemingly connected with Wally Hilliard's group because it was using a, a plane from Plane One Leasing. So, you know, once again, so once again, you have all these people together. And what's interesting about Leslie Grayling is that Grayling is a native of South Africa as well. So already you have two people, Alfonso Bow. And Leslie Grayling, who come from South Africa and are clearly embroiled in this in these criminal schemes around uh, drug running in the Florida and Bahamas area, and uh, ultimately, you know, and these financial frauds and establishing connections with very prominent individuals in the U.S. And uh, once again, you, know, you never really hear much about these connections at all. So uh, certainly, with people like uh, Jack Abramoff being run as very obvious front of South African intelligence that needs to be, uh, it's a fair question to ask if some of the other people like uh, like Alfonso Bo, like Leslie Grayling are themselves, were themselves in the employee of this intelligence as well and sort of joining in on the, joining in on this big nexus of drug drug running and, moth, and mafia activity over there in Florida. And finally, one last uh, interesting connection, a bit more indirect, but uh, one of the people, Wally Hilliard, one of his uh, prominent connections was to none other than Jerry Falwell. He, for some reason, gave Jerry Falwell a very large loan that he never really got paid back, but uh, Hilliard didn't seem to mind all that much. And Jerry Falwell, obviously, was one of the big supporters of apartheid in the whole right-wing uh, sect, you know, as a part of the Council for National Policy nexus. He was a very a staunch supporter of South Africa's apartheid government. Uh, and there you have Wally Hilliard giving financial support to him. So it seems you know, that a lot of the people who show up in Wally Hilliard's orbit are you know, 
South African themselves or pro-apartheid themselves, part of the you know, right-wing network here that is in support of apartheid. And of course, even Jack Abroff himself uh, reportedly, one of his uh, endeavors, one of his uh, organized crime endeavors was buying Sun Cruise casinos, uh, which, you know, basically taking over it and sort of in a very obvious mob takeover. And supposedly a couple of the 9-11 hijackers were on a Sun Cruise casino boat shortly before the 9-11 attacks as well. So a lot of people in this whole uh, surrounding environment seem to, you know, continue to link back to South Africa, which is a very strong indicator that it's uh, their own intelligence, their own military and intelligence services are a potential aspect of the uh, network behind the 9-11 hijacker that still has yet to be explored. And uh, with, a, with the connection with Hatfield and Howard as well, it's uh, one of the areas of potential new state sponsorship, you know, in conjunction with the U.S. and its own allies that uh, seems to have been off the radar and uh, certainly deserves to be looked at much more closely. What's well, also too, I mean, obviously with the financial, a lot of the financial records and so forth being destroyed in 9-11, um, you know, which again, uh, the South African regime was just so adept at, at um, you know, laundering money and trafficking. I mean, all this other stuff that we've been talking about. I mean, I don't even know if I really properly emphasized it enough, but there were a rather considerable amount of you know, sanctions against this regime by the late 1980s. But I mean, regardless, they were the largest, you know, arms supplier south of the Sahara. They provided most of the weapons that were used to destabilize Africa and a good chunk of other nations, um, you know. And then this is just the, tra- uh, the gun trafficking alone, which generated phenomenal sums of money that had to be laundered. I mean, we're not even getting into the drugs, potentially sex trafficking, I mean, all this other stuff, I mean, obviously poaching that was going on and the proceeds that had to be trafficked from that. I mean, it, it was just incredible and still is the amount of smuggling that all this is going through and it's running through this one specific bank I had talked about by and large earlier, KBC, uh, again, based out of Belgium. I mean, yes, it was a Flemish bank, but again, you know, we... As George and I had talked about earlier, Belgium especially, you know, it was very close to the Sercal network. It had the whole thing with Detroit, with the Westland New Post in terms of Gladio. I mean, it's a big area for a lot of these, you know, weird child sex trafficking rings and Gladio terrorism and all this other kind of stuff. Again, there's a lot of similarities between Belgium and South Africa, though South Africa was happening on a much larger scale, arguably, than what was going on in Belgium. Yeah, and don't forget as well, you know, that Hatfield, you know, the people who were running that uh, military, you know, the running that sort of the BAP earth, running that like missionary camp that gave Hatfield a start, who appear to be some kind of intelligent front themselves. The Dr. Glenn Eshtruth and his wife, Lena Eshtruth, they themselves first set up shop, their, met- their Methodist medical facility in uh, the Congo when it was still under the control of Belgium. So, yeah, yeah. Again. No, I mean, there's a lot of this, you know, I mean, going around, but I mean, again, you know, with KBC specifically, I mean, this was a bank that 
you know, was handling a lot of the financing for the South African regime. And, uh, you know, it had close ties to the U.S. intelligence community. It appears to have been used to distribute funding for the Marshall Plan, I mean, possibly to rig some elections and so forth. So, I mean, yeah, it's really stretches coincidence that the uh, U.S. intelligence community was not aware on some level of the sheer and just staggering scale of uh, trafficking and money laundering that this regime was aware of. And on top of that, I'm pretty sure that um, South Africa had acquired the Promise software by the 1980s. I think actually maybe even from Robert Maxwell. <laughs> um, yeah, that sounds about right. But um. <laughs> So Honestly, yeah, go ahead. No, I mean in general, you know, it seems to me that uh, you know that especially you know as uh, you know, especially when it came to you know by the 1970s, you know, greater exposure of a lot of the darker, seedier side of U.S. intelligence, you know, whenever it can, to turn over its operations to, I mean, other nation states that would you know do their bidding, entities within this nation state that would do their bidding or turn it over to private private military contractors to mercenary forces that you know that was you know an ideal way to go to you know to have a front who you would do work for you but not you know not really leave any direct fingerprints of yourself and uh south africa seems to be sort of a nexus for that you know whether it's with the private military forces the arms trafficking the drug trafficking and sex trafficking or the apparent money laundering organizations like uh you know, for example, Leslie Grayling's member service corporation that are set up. It's uh, nearly a hot weapon and nuclear wheel weapon proliferation. Uh, let me see, poaching rhinos and other endangered species. It's like, what isn't being smuggled in South Africa? <laughs> Seriously. Oh, my Lord. Yes. Uh, I mean, it's just terrible. And I mean, really, at this, you know, I mean, it was used to really destabilize much of Africa. And I mean, this is an ongoing state of affairs and it's created a, a power vacuum where a lot of these, uh, you know, Western linked private military companies using, I mean, this sort of black South African network uh, have, you know, I mean, effectively, uh, you know, relaunch colonialism more or less. I mean, through these sort of mini East India companies, it's really just a, uh, a horrendous situation and I mean and sadly I mean it's almost never talked about yeah I mean at this point you know we've gone I mean maybe the age of explicit you know national imperialist colonialism is gone but we're basically at a point where it's a de facto the same thing anyway with all these private entities who are achieving the same ends and making it giving us the illusion of all these countries being independent sovereign states yeah, and I mean, it's it's something that we need to really seriously be considering because, I mean, I think that this is the blueprint for kind of the neo-feudalism that's uh, probably going to be brought to the West in the coming years. Yeah. You know, especially if you see further breakup of the EU, possibly the United States. I mean, even, you know, the PRC can be discounted. I mean, this, I think, is exactly what certain factions would like and i mean when you look at how uh, well some of these pmcs have worked in africa i mean it's definitely a real possibility yeah it's a it's a troubling uh, troubling future that seems to be on the horizon up with all with this mess out there absolutely well 
On that note, I guess we should uh, sign off for now. We've been at this, I think, for a little over three hours, and it's uh, almost one in the morning presently, and I still have not had dinner yet. So, as always, thank you guys for listening and all your support. And uh, with that, good night and good luck to you all.